He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 17, 2024. Sandy Phillips is an amazing guest. She's coming up, but not until I have a great talk with our show troubadour, Dave Gunders. Troubadour speaking. Troubadour, my tried and true troubadour. How are your travels? My travels are great. It's good to be here with my father in Connecticut. It's a cold but sunny day here in Connecticut. It's beautiful. How are you? I'm doing well. We're both traveling men because I intend to go to my alma mater, Colorado College, for a big basketball alumni weekend. Oh. See, I'm all all choked up about it. Wow. Are they honoring you? No. Well, they should. Well, it's it's an honor to be there. I got invited. That's great. But I'm not individually honored. Do you still have any records standing? I think I do for single season scoring record pre-three-point basket. Wow. I mean, my record's been broken many times since. Yeah. And, and of course, on my tombstone, he averaged (laughs) over 20 points a game in college. (laughs) Is that that, what's going to be in your... That's my. Okay. That's at the top. You better give. You better give those directives to someone. To, but I'm hoping that uh, no one will have to to think about that for a long time. I know, but uh, I'll put it in order. I also want to be a freedom fighter. And my goodness, Twitter X, whatever you call it, is an active place. And I've been emoting because so many interesting things are happening that I'd rather think about you know, glory days in my very small college, Colorado College, and uh, then think about the world gone crazy. You've got the perfect Uh, song this week. I just got, I was just informed by you about Navalny's most likely murder. What a shame. What a a hero that guy is. Absolutely. 47 years old. You went back to Russia. He could have been rich. He could have lived in the West. His wife spoke at a big Western conference yesterday. He wow. was fine when he was in court yesterday, dead now in the hands, Siberian hands of Vlad Putin, emboldened by the House taking two weeks off rather than pass the bipartisan aid to Ukraine bill that went through the Senate. Why didn't the House take it up? Because Donald Trump, Putin's pal, told him to go on vacation. Don't take wow. it up. He's screwing up the border thing. So that's why it's good to travel. And as we stand up for freedom, and really, I wish we could have frivolous things like old basketball, whatever. It, right, it, right. It, it's Alexei Navalny is dead. And maybe know, it's a turning a point, but Putin feels emboldened to do that. He just used and abused Tucker Carlson, who was bragging about 
how great it is. He was going to McDonald's there. It's better than our McDonald's. Their subways are better. Their supermarkets. But when he got off the plane, he he did a tour in support of, uh, of his new pal Putin, but he got informed of Navalny being killed and uh and and now and now he's saying, Oh, it's terrible. But you know what he said at, at some Arab country he stopped off on when he was confronted with why didn't you bring up Navalny? That's while he he was still alive. He said, Look, all leaders kill people. That's just part of it. That's why I don't want to be a leader. That's what he said. And wow. And and so that guy should be shunned at Tucker Carlson and everybody who's still backing Trump slash Putin. I'm just so angry about it. Sorry for you to. Uh, it's, no, it's a shame. I mean, this was the he was the f- most formidable opposition uh, yes. person in 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 in. I don't know if there's anyone who, yes. who stands yes. close to him. Kuzmarovia. There's there's another guy whose wife is brave on the outside. I think it's Kuzmarovia. Wow. Anyway, you know what else happened that might have triggered this is. For all those asshole hosts, people who claim to be champions of the right causes, to call Joe Biden some kind of mobster crime family head, God, it irritates me, the Biden crime family. You know what came out yesterday? Dave Gunder is our troubadour. Do you know what came out? No. What? That this guy who supplied the bullshit that uh, Joe Biden got a big payoff from Burisma connecting. Oh, he was a lot. You're right. He's been. Alexander Smirnov was uncovered. You're right. By a a Republican special counsel, David Weiss. And so that game is up. You know, they needed to project their own mobsterism, their own kleptocracy on Joe Biden. Well, I'm glad that was debunked. Right, but look how they paid for it with violence. Maybe Navalny had to give his life because Putin needs another thing for for people to be scared about and to talk about. Isn't he coming up for re-election, so-called re-election soon? Oh, my God, yeah, it's fixed. It's fixed the way our elections will be fixed if we give Trump a chance at it. That's what it comes down to, but. Yeah, it's been a big week, too. And Donald Trump, he uh, has a trial set in late March on the Stormy Daniels issue. And that'll be fun. And then Judge Chutkin is waiting to see if she can get her case back. Have you been following that? It's Yes. It's probably being decided, even as we speak, around a conference table at the U.S. Supreme Court building. And they wow. have all the necessary paperwork, and they meet on Friday mornings, as I understand it. And they get kind of a tentative vote, like a jury meeting. Now, right, it, she's defending herself. She's saying that they're lying with this whole, um, the whole affair. No, no, I'm talking. No, I'm talking about the U.S. Supreme Court now. The U.S. Supreme Court on whether Judge Chutkin can get it back. We'll get, we'll oh. get to Fonnie oh. Willis. Okay. Um, okay. That's all right. So Judge Chetkin uh, is waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, Trump is asking for a stay. Now to You're get talking it, about on the January sixth, the insurrection. Uh, on USA v. Trump, Jack Smith yes. shot okay. at him in Washington. Yes. So then he 
he needs five votes out of the nine. Now, six of them are conservative. Some of you them mean are whether they're going to hear it hear or not. Whether, is that the question? It's four to Soon. hear it, four to grant cert, but five to issue a stay. So okay. he needs five votes, and really that vote will indicate whether the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be in the tank for him because it's an easy issue. What, are you going to give him immunity like Vladimir Putin enjoys so he can kill political prisoners? Bullshit. You shouldn't give right. a stay. But they're in the tank for Trump if there are five votes. That's disgusting. Mm. And I, right. I don't know what we can do about it except What was that, it? The, the district court was like 9-0. I, I it was 1-0. Right? First, Judge Chuckin ruled, no, you don't have oh. immunity. Then it went to the uh, D.C. Circuit Court where it was 3-0 with a great decision. The U.S. Supreme Court can say, that's good for us. We're not going to take this case. It's not like there's a conflict between districts. So all they're doing is doing Trump a favor. If they grant cert with four votes, that's a favor. But the biggest favor takes five votes, which is to stay right. the trial. So right. I, I hope I explained that well. Now on to Bonnie Willis. She yes, took this stand in the most incredible testimony. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm trying to do work. I've got my yeah. legal career, but... First, her boyfriend, Nathan Wade, got on the stand. Yeah. And you've been traveling. Let me sum it up. We learned that his wife cheated on him in 2015. He stayed with his family uh, for the sake of the kids. And then he got cancer about 2019 and 20. And that's when they were old enough to start the divorce. And that's when he met Bonnie Willis at a convention. And they were friendly and maybe flirtatious, but it didn't turn into anything until after she had hired him. Now, the right. problem is they went on about four or five vacations, cruises, this, that, including the Belize for his 50th birthday, where Bonnie Willis said she wanted to put on the dog for him. I mean, a big party because she said my 50th birthday sucked. Now, maybe that's because it was COVID time, whatever, but she said she brought four or five K in cash and that he put some stuff on his car, but he gave, she gave him cash. And that's why right. the big thing is whether office money was expended on it, tax mm -hmm. money. And so right. they have to go into the details of when it became more than a friendship. And of course our lawyers in love, my brother and sister-in-law had a law firm for years. In fact, the lady asking questions, this Ashley Merchant on behalf of Mike Roman, codependent with Donald Trump, she's got her husband at counsel table. They're a married defense team. So it's hardly unheard of in legal circles, but if you get tax money money and the employer employee thing is more problematic, but she took the stand and she said, you know what? I'm a proud black woman. First of all, when you ask me about intimacy, you're asking about you're asking me to emasculate someone, uh, a black man, a black man. She brought that up and talked about her black father, taught her to keep cash, leaves, you know, uh, six right. months worth of cash. And if she goes right. on a date, take $200 in cash in case something happens. And, right. she, and they called her father on Friday morning who corroborated it. And he's been an right. attorney. What a character. 
So in other words, she wasn't. It wasn't a covert kind of. Uh, well, like, it, it, but right, but nobody in the office really knew about it. But of course, yeah. I didn't know about all my boss's girlfriends, although I knew about some of them. You know, you think back, there's a private life, and that's the point she was right. trying to make while the whole right. world was listening to when they slept at this place and oh, when they boy. went on that cruise. Yeah. And yeah. she kind of survived it, though, just with well, swagger. Well, it sounds like she's meeting it head on. That's good. I she's mean, right. She said, I'm, I'm a proud female, and I'll do what I want. She said, for me, a man is not a plan. For me, a man is a companion. Right. And, and so she says, I never have relied on any man for money except my daddy when I was young. Right. Well, good. She's, you know what? She's having her, vo her voice. It's good that she's, you know, that she's uh, making her stand, you know. And it sounds like she's being honest, too. So just air the facts. And even though it's embarrassing as hell, I mean, to, to put your private life you know, on public display like that. Well, speaking of fine voice, it was you at the alley last Friday night. What a great night it was. We put it up on our YouTube shorts, the Craig Thanks Silverman show. And yeah. And it was amazing. It was uh, uh, a nice, friendly venue on Main Street, and there was your name in lights. <laughs> yeah. And you, you've been a band member for so long. You, yeah. You've been processing it. Now it's been almost a week, right? So how does it feel almost now? A week. It feels good, and I, you know, it gave me a, uh, it gave me motivation to continue um, trying to hone some of these songs as a solo performer. And and I'll have a chance in Boulder on uh, March fifteenth to uh, as my second solo performance, uh, and we'll see how that goes. I'm looking forward to it. And you look forward to being back with the band, too, because you love the camaraderie of that more than anything. Yes, yeah. yes. Like I told you, I actually have more fun uh, playing in a band with the boys, you know. Um, yeah, it's, you know, music is, when it's collaboration, when you're, um, you know, when you're making something happen with a group of guys, it's it's really fun. Performing as a solo guy, um, it's it's interesting to me, and it might get that fun at some point, but we'll see. Well, we have a three-piece band. And that's you, me, and Bradley. We don't talk about Bradley because he's so good. He's a secret. But uh, He's behind the scenes, but all important. Yes. And let me shout tell Shout out to Bradley. Shout out. Shout yeah, out Bradley, yeah, but not. Yeah. Right. We don't want anybody else knowing about Bradley because he's no, just that good. No. Anyway. Get it. You know who knows about me? Because we talked about the size of the crowd. It really doesn't matter. We're going to put our heart and soul into it, whether there are 500 people listening to us right now or 5 million people. But I had an amazing ex post that took off because Joe Biden gave one of the greatest speeches I ever heard. He asked Congress before they adjourned for two weeks, please take up this bill. Here are the reasons. Yes. It was like... Yeah. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill. He did it great. It seemed like he's about 45 years old. I put that in my tweet. And it took off. I got over 10,000 likes. I think it's up to 12,000. 283,000 views. Now, that's a lot yeah. of views for Ed Craig's Colorado. Yes. But that's good. Interesting. Yeah. And so basically, you were what you 
what what was being retweeted were your comments on on his performance in his during the speech. I said, everybody take time. Something like this is Joe Biden at his finest, and I definitely thought he was like forty five year old. I'm like anybody else. I'm waiting for him to stumble. Although he's given great speeches at Valley yeah. Forge and Charleston before this at the AME Church. He's been giving great speeches, despite that bad report by that Robert Herr. What a hit job. And I'm sure he's better after a nap or whatever, but that speech he gave the other day, he must have had a great night's sleep, eaten the perfect breakfast, had a sauna, because he looked good, he sounded good. And by contrast to Trump, it was amazing. So I just kind of, what you can do on X I found a good soundbite somebody had posted, and I posted my thoughts because I hate to see Biden caricatured. I learned about this when I had Mike Rothschild on, the QAnon expert. Part of QAnon is to demonize Joe Biden. Of course, Joe Biden is older, but he is still operating pretty well. As we discussed last week, Your father, Henry Gunders, was pretty darn sharp at age 80 and even at age 90. And I don't know why you're going to see him. He's not even 100 yet. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm happy to be here. And uh, yes, we're going to celebrate his 100th birthday, June 30th. Well, that's yeah. we need the world to survive till then. Tell us about how you came up with World Gone Crazy. Actually, uh, boy, I can't. I think it was a it school was, shooting. Um, I know we've talked it, well, about Well, it was this. a school shooting, and I don't think it was Parkland because that one, actually, I have a few songs that were written mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of in response to school shootings. The other was Place in the Sun that I thought it, that I actually submitted to you as a possibility for right. this week. But but uh, at any rate, yes, a school shooting. It's The song starts out, at, you know. Reading on you know on my screen another you know a, a news flash of a school shooting and and not even had the time to process from the one who that had happened you know a week or two before just how how crazy it is you know um, and world gone crazy it's it's about these shootings yeah and that's what our show is about this week because Jesse Galway got shot dead and it was the yeah. anniversary of Parkland Jesse got shot dead yeah. at the Aurora Theater Massacre her mother Sandy Sandy Phillips was my extraordinary guest troubadour yeah. i can tell you that she was one of the most delightful people to talk to and your song represents exactly what happened when she got that dreaded phone call. And the horrible thing is that her daughter had survived a a mass shooting in Toronto about just a few months before. And and this was the awful year of 2012. They all blend together, but Aurora Theater Massacre on uh, July 20, 2012. Wow. And she was- I can't believe it's been that long. She was taken, her mama in San Antonio, got the dreaded call. Uh, Her son dispatched to Denver. I remember all this, but we try to put it aside, and it gets overwhelmed by other events. She met Barack Obama. We're going to play that sound, and she gave an extraordinary interview right afterwards. And then Chris Cuomo gave uh, an excellent profile of Jesse that we're going to play between our talk and uh, our privilege to give a great extended conversation with Sandy. 
And, you know, she's on the other side now because it's been a while and you can only grieve so long. She has tears, but she and Lonnie have just this extraordinary love. So it's a great Valentine's Day show. And they've traveled the world trying to comfort others who have experienced this. They've been to Sandy Hook, which happened in December 14, 2012. They just went to Uvalde. And they're really disappointed in America and the inability of the Congress to do anything because, you know, it just comes... it comes back to a world gone crazy. Yeah, the absurdity of the ideology to, uh, you know, protect yep. gun rights at all costs, at all costs, you know. Um, if, more, if, if more guns make us safer, then why aren't we the safest country on earth? Yeah, good question. You can ask it, you can ask that question to the next gun rights advocate who says, uh, you know, the only way to stop a, a bad guy with guns is a good guy with guns, right? Right, but they're mind manipulated. And the NRA joined forces with Putin. And the only thing we really disagree about on our walks and on our show is the connection of Putin to Trump. And I think I'm winning. Trump is connected well, I to just, Putin. I think there's an, there's an overlap. I stopped short of saying he's a Russian agent. But uh, yeah, I mean, no, I, I I see your your point. I think Putin is someone he admires. He is a strong man. That that uh, you know, Trump admires. Um, how far you know, how far uh, Putin goes into actually influencing Trump? I don't know. I think of Trump more as a big buffoon. But you know, I listen to my buddy. <laughs> I right, but, it but, all. but what what does Trump respect? In this world, yeah, he respect he respects the you know, totally the wielding of power, you know, power, regardless, power regardless and of one other rights. thing, money. He loves yeah. money. That was even the theme for the money, money, money. And he wants to be the richest guy, but the richest guy I think on earth is Putin. That's a big problem. Yeah. And then one, the second richest, Elon Musk, big problem. Yep. And we have a world gone crazy. I just think right. that's one of your top 10 songs. I, I can't stop thinking about it. It reminds me of Sandy Phillips, who has learned how to have some happiness. And even though you're talking about morbid subjects and radical speech getting out of hand, you have a great rhythm going, and you're not screaming or ranting. And... I just think it's a great tone you take with it, and it's a dancing kind of song. I bet you get people up and dancing. I hope you get the band to play this occasionally. Not yet, but it's possible. So we'll we'll see about playing that one. We haven't played that one yet. That's that that was more of a statement at the time. I haven't uh, I haven't introduced it to the band, but uh, it might be too political. More, it might be too may, political. Yeah, yeah. It not not for my podcast, though. It's perfect Definitely for my not. podcast. Go ahead. Tell us what you're working on next. Well, I'm always working on new new songs. In fact, I'm here with my father. I brought I brought my new book. I call I I title this book Contenders, which is uh, a new group of songs. They're only contenders for what would hopefully be another project at some point in the future. But uh, that's kind of what I do. Um, I'm always keeping you know keeping my antennas up for a good song 
And so I'm working on a few, Craig. I'll let you know how it's going. We're, we're back to basketball because you're assembling a team of about 20 possible players. But you're going to cut your roster down to about yep. 10 or 11, right? And so what yeah. song makes the cut, that's what you're doing now? Yes, I'm kind of working on which ones will make the cut. And then we get a new album. Do you have a title for well, the album? And then, and then the ones that make the cut, I have to work on, you know, obviously on the lyrics, which are so important, you know, to me to actually be singing about something of, of import, something, uh, you know, uh, that, I, that I care about. And then um, if the, if it all works, then then I start inviting my buddies, you know, do some little recording with me. And you might try it out with me on a walk. That's happened. And then uh, it's what about that. three years between albums for you? No, I don't want three years. No, too long. Two years? Two, uh, one and a half to two years. Uh, no, I had an album released right. last so um, what, July. Right. So this next summer would be a one year, and you never know. But I, uh, it takes a while, even after I've chosen the songs, you know, to to work them all up and record them and mix them just because I'm not doing it full time. You know, I'm still a working man, but uh, as long as I got my hand in the game, I feel happy. And your creative juices are flowing and it really flows through this song. It's a perfect predicate. We're going to talk about world gone crazy. We're going to hear Dave Gunders. You may hear an ad or two, but then you're going to hear the sound bites introducing Jesse Gowie. And then you're going to hear about when, uh, Lonnie and Sandy met Barack Obama, and they had a good cry together. And it kind of wow. made me think about crying. And then we're going to hear from Sandy for a good long while. Do you know good. she was a Disney executive rising wow. in the ranks, the first female for about 11 years? And starting in the late 60s, she grew up in Long Beach. Oh, my God. She has an amazing story. And then Lonnie, he, he is the love of her life. and And... It's like good luck and bad luck in this world, right? She had the worst yeah. luck, but she had great yeah. luck finding a partner who was copacetic on their mission, which is to fight for reasonable gun laws. They grew up with guns, both of them. And their wow. book is amazing. I, I get to talk all about it. But people want to hear your song, and I want to wish you safe travels, and will you give my best to Henry Gunders? I will do so. Thank you. And Craig. will you tell him that he's got to do an interview when he hits okay. 100? 100. <laughs> okay. I don't care about 99. I'll, when he I'll gets, let him know. Tell him he's booked for our July 4th show. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll tell him. All right. Thank you. Oh. Shabbat shalom. And Shabbat shalom, Craig. Thanks. Everybody enjoy World Gone Crazy by Dave Gunders. Then we're going to talk about the serious subject of guns in America. What are we doing? That's our focus this week. Sandy Phillips, thank you so much. You were amazing. News flash across my screen, won't sink in. Hate raining down on us once more. Had no time to process, now it's gone down again. Thinking that tomorrow there'll be more Been a little while since a love gone missing 
missing Some kind of madness drift across our land Too much talk, not enough listening catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent 
looking for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. I am Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Good morning, Biana. You know, we've been talking about the 70 people who were injured here, and that being the biggest number uh, in American history. It's, it's a very dubious statistic to lean on, but as we learned about this tragedy, the first name that came out was a young woman who really captured what this was all about, full of life, so much promise, and a life taken too soon, almost twice. Described as vivacious and full of life by family and friends, Jessica Gowie had dropped everything to move to Denver to pursue her career in journalism. We spoke to her brother, Jordan. What made her different was her passion for her life, um, the obstacles that she constantly overcame. And Jessica had been challenged. The 25-year-old aspiring sportscaster from San Antonio, Texas, was at a Toronto mall earlier this year when another gunman went on a rampage. Her mother told Diane Sawyer about how Jessica felt after the ordeal. She wrote afterwards, it was a final post on her personal blog, I can't get this odd feeling out of my chest, this empty, almost sickening feeling won't go away. Yes, and she was uh, very affected by watching the victims being brought out of that shooting and realizing that um, several of them were very close to her own age and realized that life is very fragile. And she had a epiphany at that moment that it could happen to any of us at any time. And instead of being afraid of that, she embraced life even more fully from that time on and uh, I'm sorry. There is no need to be sorry. I know that she read, I, I was shown how fragile life is. We don't know when our time on earth will end, when or where we will breathe our last breath. Beautifully written, and we had really thought we had literally dodged a bullet that day, and I was so grateful that she was all right and that the chances of her experiencing anything like that ever again were impossible, or so I thought. 
And she texted you, I believe her last text to you was, I'm so excited for your trip here next week. Yes. And I need and my mommy. And I need my mommy. On her way to the movie with her close friend Brent Loack, Jessica tweeted, never thought I'd have to coerce a guy into seeing the dark night rises with me. But minutes into the movie, shots rang out. And soon after, Jessica's mother received a phone call from Brent. And I said, is she okay? And he said, I'm so sorry. And I just screamed, please tell me she's alive. And of course he couldn't tell me that. Jessica's life has ended too soon and left her family struggling for answers. My life is forever changed and forever damaged by one person's horrible, violent choice. Remembering a daughter they love so dearly. And we were blessed to have her every second. And that is the painful message that comes out of the loss of somebody like Jessica Gowie. It's a reminder to everybody to love the people in their family, to enjoy their lives. That is one of the few messages that we can pull out of a tragedy like this, Dan and Bianca, that helps us move forward together, that recognition that we have to appreciate life because you never know what will happen next. You know, we were so blessed and so honored to be in that room with the president today, and half the room was full of other victims and survivors. And he spoke with us and spoke to us so eloquently and said all the things that have been needed to be said in our country for many, many years. And when he shed tears, um, it made all of us shed tears, but we shed tears every day. So um, I want a leader who is strong enough to cry. I want a leader who shows compassion. I want a leader who moves this issue forward. And unlike the other side, the GOP side who has uh, kept things from moving forward and do nothing and have no plan to save lives in America. You know, um, you mentioned the president's compassion. We saw him uh, tearing in his announcement, but he also showed some frustration when he was talking about this becoming such a partisan issue. As you mentioned, that Congress hasn't done anything uh, since many of these mass shootings. I mean, there were several after uh, the Aurora, Colorado shootings. Are you angry at your lawmakers uh, for not having done much after these deaths, these massacres? We're not so angry at them as we are disgusted. It's time to move these guys out of office. They are obviously pandering to the NRA, to the gun lobbyist. They have been bought by the gun lobbyist, and we are tired of having them pretend to care. What you saw happen today with the president, it's not hard for a father to cry or a stepfather to cry, but to see the president of the United States overcome with emotion when he's in a room full of victims and survivors, I would be very surprised that he didn't cry. That makes him a man, a moral man, a man that I would like to have for president. And I hope that our new president would be willing to do the same. You know, when, when you look at, and, and, and speak to an international audience here, when you look at the whole constitutional argument, and that's the argument that is made by those who oppose any changes to, to gun laws, do you think those who who wrote and passed and ratified that law back in, what, 1791, uh, envisioned the America that exists today in terms of weaponry? 
Of course not. I mean, we had muskets then, and uh, the the NRA and uh, other organizations that uh, pander to the NRA um, forget the first part of that amendment, which says well regulated. Uh, in fact, in the NRA building, they they don't have that part on their wall. Um, so we do need to regulate um, these weapons of mass destruction. Really, I mean, when somebody like in our case, can go into a theater and fire mili military-grade bullets and um, kill 12 and wounded 70. When that can happen so easily in our country and, and we don't have the regulations to keep it from happening, we need to do something. And for the GOP to say we don't is just really ludicrous. You know, I know that both of you have been pushing really hard uh, after the massacre inside the Aurora, Colorado um, theater to, to pass laws that would prevent gun violence. You know, there's been so much backlash, though, you know, even before the president announced his executive actions, especially uh, from the Republican presidential candidates. You heard some of their uh, sound bites there, you know, promising to essentially, quote unquote, erase uh, what the president did to undo it and also threatened that, you know what, we'll take it to the courts as well. I mean, does that concern you? What can you do? What can uh, the people do to prevent that from happening? It really doesn't concern me at the moment. Um, first of all, there, there's a lot of bluster that goes on on that side and they, they spend more time fighting with one another than they do getting anything done in America, which is the problem. Um, I, I doubt very seriously that a Republican will be elected this next uh, election and that gives gives me hope that we can actually move this issue forward. The one thing that did happen with uh, President Obama speaking today and, and declaring the things that he has declared is now in America we can have the dialogue that we have not been able to have before. And Americans now know all the issues that need to be addressed in order to reduce gun violence in our country. What's wrong with a politician that want, that does not want to do something to protect the American people. What what's wrong with this picture? I mean, this is really a, a, a public health and safety issue that has been going on for many many years. And if it had been a disease, we would have addressed it a long long time ago. You know, uh, you're wearing Jessica's photograph on yes. on your lapel there. When when you think of her as all of this unfolds, yes. uh, you know, I, I'm just I'm just curious. I, I cannot imagine. And I'm a parent too. I cannot imagine your anger and frustration when, as we were just saying here, you've got 80 to 90 percent of people who favour this, who favour expanded universal background checks, and you've got a bunch of politicians who won't lift a finger to follow the wishes of the people who elected them. I'm just wondering when you think of your daughter, I mean, it, it must make you just want to cry all over again. Well, we cry every day still. Uh, I doubt that there'll ever be a time that we, we don't. We miss her terribly. And that's why we fight so hard. Um, Lonnie and I have sold everything we own. Um, we live in a camper and we travel from community to community speaking on these issues, educating Americans and working with victims and survivors so um, they can become advocates in their own communities. It's a very grassroots effort. So she'd be very proud of us. We have no doubt of that. And we don't want other people in America to end up walking in our shoes. These are painful shoes to walk in. This is a great honor for me to talk to somebody who is a hero. It grows out of a Colorado criminal case, and I never really met this woman, but I've admired her when I've watched her on 
local Colorado television and then national TV internationally. She's known as an advocate for common sense gun reform. She came to that through the tragic murder of her daughter in the Aurora Theater Massacre. Her name is Sandy Phillips. Sandy, we've, of course, communicated online through X or whatever you call Twitter these days, but it's so nice to see you. We are on Zoom, and uh, I've seen you a lot on TV, but you look great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's nice to have a face with the name with you as well. Well, I had the advantage of reading your great book yesterday, Tragedy in Aurora, The Culture of Mass Shootings in America. And I'm a procrastinator, but one, I want to have it fresh in my mind. And then I thought, well, how am I going to acquire this book? And I don't want to make you mad. But on Amazon, there was only one copy left for $59. (laughs) Oh, really? Uh, Usually it's uh, one copy left for $9.99. (laughs) Well, then I checked the Arapahoe County Library, okay? Uh And then uh, the nice lady who said the Cobalt Branch showed me how to install Hoopla. And next thing you know, I checked the book out from the library, read it on my laptop. It was extraordinary. I'll never be the same. I could read it on my phone, but I probably cost you some money. Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. We didn't write it to make money. That's for sure. I know, but you did have so many entertaining parts. Well, thank you. uh, And and your upbringing, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Because we we wish they all could be California girls, but you really were. I really was. Yes, I was uh, raised in Southern California. Grew up at the beach. Uh, had an I- idyllic uh, childhood, um, and uh, was married. Uh, and that marriage didn't work out, and uh, moved to Texas. And was lucky enough to meet my husband in Texas. No, we got to back up. No, we got to back up to California for a second. Okay, we'll stay in California. I mean, (laughs) Disneyland for over a decade. Yes, eleven years with Disney, and uh, during what I refer to the golden era, um, it was really at the the prime of everything that was really great about Disney. We hadn't opened Florida yet. We didn't have any international uh, Disney lands or Disney worlds. Um, but I was there for all of that. How and far How far was that from your house? How far was it? Oh, about 20 minutes. So were you in Orange County then or L.A.? Well, I grew up in, I grew up in Long Beach. Okay, Long Beach, um, that's right. Yes, yes. Grew up in Long Beach and then moved to Orange County when I graduated from high school. And, um, yeah, I was about 20 minutes away from the park. And it really was just a wonderful experience back then. In fact, most of the people that I worked with are still among my very closest friends. Right, but so, you, you, you rose to a pretty high level. And they had quite I, the... I, they had quite the, was, the training program, and you were integral in all of that, right? I was very, very lucky. When I first started uh, at Disneyland, uh, there were no women in management, or the few that were were 
in unique areas of the park. Um, but there weren't any any foremen. They were four men, not four women, uh, or leads or any of that. They were <laughs> just four men. And I remember complaining to my supervisor in Fantasyland that uh, I had trained all my bosses. And when was I going to get an opportunity? And at that point, they were sending a lot of people to Florida to start the pro project in Florida and to get it open. And they were desperate for people to um, promote from within. And so they changed their philosophy and started promoting women. And I was lucky enough to be mentored by a man that created the, the Disney University and their training program. And his name was Van France. And Van was just um, everything that you would not think of as Disney. He was a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker. Um, every other word was a cuss word, you know, so not what you would think of as Disney. But he was such a brilliant man. And I learned so much for, from him. Um, and, and I talk about him all the time still to this day that he really gave me the foundation to, to do the work that I currently do um, because it was all about establishing relationships. It wasn't about what the job title was. He was always one that said, I can train you to do a job. I can teach you how to do a job. I can't teach you how to be. That is something you have to have inside of you. And he just would take you and, and take you like a, a a rough diamond and polish you up and teach you all the the little secrets uh of getting along with people in in the business world and i just feel so blessed to have ever had that experience so i ended up um in the training program creating helping to create the training program for uh tokyo disneyland oh my gosh what years what decade were you there at disney I was there from, I believe I started in 68. It might have been 69, but I think it was 68. And I left in 70 or 71. I was there 11 years and roughly in that time frame. Did you know um, Walt? Did you know Walt? Did, I you know his Did you know his brother, Roy? I never met Roy. I did meet Walt once. Um, and it was like, you know, oh my God, there's my grandfather. You know, I, I was so excited to meet somebody that I had actually grown up watching on television. And um, he was wonderful. He was charming and sweet. And he was with his wife and they had just had dinner at the, doesn't exist anymore, at the Tahitian Terrace. And I had been at the Tahitian Terrace having dinner with my boyfriend who worked at the park. And, um, and got to meet him that way. So is that a restaurant? Is that a restaurant? It in was. Disneyland? It was, and they had Tahitian dancers and um, a whole show with the fire and all of that. It was. It was really wonderful. Of course, it doesn't exist anymore. Everything has changed, but you know, if it doesn't make a whole lot of money, it's gone. <laughs> all right. What about that? I, I went there as a kid. And I wore glasses, and I remember the Matterhorn scared me, and I took off my glasses, and uh, I it was how many times have you ridden the Matterhorn? Oh, I couldn't even tell you. I worked it for a number of years, so um, and I was on the opening shift, so we had to ride it 
every morning. So, you know, if, if I worked there for, let's say a year, that's at least 365. <laughs> no, well, not oh quite God. because I didn't work seven days a week, but um, certainly rode it a lot and climbed the mountain a lot. So, yeah. Great times. I've had LASIK now, and you're wearing glasses. But it's all coming back to me that as I entered this unbelievably scary ride, I don't know, I was six or seven, (laughs) the guy said, you better take off your glasses and hold them in your hand. Is that what you trained them to say? Did you take off your glasses? No. No. We, we uh, We were more concerned about hats, and at the time, uh, women wore hair pieces. Um, <laughs> and, and so we were more concerned because they would come out and their hair would be gone, you know, because it wasn't pinned in tight enough. And, you know, so we had those experiences and hats were, you know, at the end of the day, it was like, it just at, when you leave the park, we would take them down to lost and found like two or three times a day because there was always somebody who'd lost a hat and we'd take them down to lost and found. And we just tell them to come back at the, at the end of the day, check with lost and found down on main street. And hopefully it'll be there. <laughs> There's so much about your upbringing in your fun book. There are very fun parts of your book, especially about Jesse. Jesse was a pistol. She, she was known for she her was. sense of humor. So come on. And Lonnie is in the background there and he can pipe in if he wants, but your story is you know, he's just an oil guy. How many people started Disney University? I mean, oh gosh, you. Well, one man, one man started Disney University with the help from others. But yeah, um, you were one of it, the others. Well, I didn't start it, but he, Van, was really instrumental in creating the team that did continue the Disney University. And then we continued looking at, okay, what parts will translate into the the Tokyo Disneyland project and mm-hmm. what works and what doesn't, what needs to be changed. And um, so we had, we had a great time. I mean, we had so much fun and uh, there are people that started on that project that I'm still very, very, very close to, to this day. Well, I like Disney, especially back in the day. I grew up on Mickey Mouse, but I wasn't obsessed yes. with it. But some people right. do get obsessed. And when I read your oh, yeah. book, it reminded me of, of some other books I've read, some other guests. And would you agree that some people can kind of go overboard on Disney? Is that possible? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, who it, are it, those people? Because I know one. <laughs> I know one such person. And I will say, after you describe who these people are, I want to see if she fits that bill. Um, they collect everything they can get their hands on. Um, they go to everything that they can possibly go on, whether it's a cruise or to the parks or to every theme park that's out there that's Disney. They will see every Disney film as it opens, and it must be on the opening day. Um, they read everything about Walt and every, whether it's true or not, they read it, um, so, yeah, they go to the museum that's up in the San Francisco area. And when I left the park, I left the park. You know, I mean, I I, I kept my relationships with the people, 
but I've only been back to the park a handful of times. And that was because I pretty much had to for one reason or another. Um, I remember I took my children there, of course, and I took Lonnie there uh, one time. And I went back to visit uh, a couple of friends one time that were still working there. But I've got friends that retired after 50 years there. Right. My boy, it's like Legoland better. We went to that part of Southern California, but the person I know who I talked to on the radio about it, Jenna Ellis. Jenna Ellis loved all things Disney. She loved going to Disney World, Disneyland, and she she was, I don't know, does that mean anything? Do you say, well, that makes sense, or hmm, or it takes all types? It takes all kinds. Uh, one of Jesse's best friends is a big Disney person and goes to Disney World every year. You know, it's a it's like a every year must. And I know what it costs to do Disney these days. And, you know, it's like she has to save up a lot of money in order to do that. So, you know, it's not like it used to be. Right. We all have our passions, and I suppose some are worse than others. Did you have any awareness of Disney's celebrity lanes and sports center here in Colorado, Glendale, exactly? Uh, Yes, I I did. Um, In fact, when it was being discussed, uh, I was up at the the president of Disney at that time, um, Dick Nunes, who just passed away a couple of months ago. Um, but I was up in his office one time looking at the plans and talking about what they had hoped to do eventually. And of course it morphs and changes and. No, it was, it was incredible. Let me tell you what, what it was. 80 lanes of bowling, a massive Olympic sized swimming pool, Uh, a pool room, and a slot car racing area in the basement. I mean, this came in when I was in my adolescence. I thought I died and went to heaven. You'd get get a day pass, and you could do all of those things. I mean, it was like a triathlon and more, and you'd meet girls, and it was a big event. It was the biggest thing we saw in Colorado for quite a while. It's been a while. Yes, yeah, so Disney thought big, and what do you think of, before we leave this subject, it's grown into everything, and I don't know, sometimes it pairs back, movies, ESPN. It, 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 sound, it's, it has become the mouse that roared. Um, I remember having a conversation with, with Van France, who was my mentor, um, when they started talking about doing overseas theme parks. And I said, what are we going to become? Are we going to become the McDonald's of theme parks? And he said, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> and that has been true. We have built it and they have come. And notice that I still say we, um, because it's so ingrained that you are part of that uh, machine. And it's always we, the cast. Um, so yeah, I still say we, and I haven't been there. <laughs> almost 40 something years yeah but you are i'm so glad we didn't just move right to texas and lonnie and all of that for (laughs) crying out loud you had a big life right yeah well yes and so did he before we met so you know we we met at a at the perfect time for for both of us and uh i'm very 
very grateful that he came into my life and the lives of my children. It's a love story of the ages. We had Valentine's <laughs> Day, but you are lucky, seriously. What a blessing <laughs> to have a partner like that. And through the book, it shines through, and I've been watching your interviews with your permission. I'm going to play you guys on CNN the day you cried with President Obama. I'm going to play the glowing tribute by uh, Cuomo of Jesse and all of that. We're going to get to that, but your love, the luck... I mean, life, I tell my clients, and I've dealt with a lot of people who have suffered your loss, and there's no justice. Your your daughter won't come back. But generally speaking, in life, there's good luck and bad luck. It's like the Matterhorn, peaks and valleys. And you've had some terrible luck, but the luck of meeting your, your Lonnie, right? You're holding his hand. It makes, I Absolutely. guess, it, it shines through and... Just every, every night when we go to bed, then this is this is true. Every night when we go to bed, I said, we, we've had another, we got another day together, baby. We've had another day. And he just turned 80 in January. I'm 70, I'll be 74 in April. And I think whenever you can actually lay your head down on the pillow at the end of the night and thank God or the universe or whatever the higher power that you believe in that you can thank that higher power for that gift of love, that commitment to joy that we have with one another. That's pretty fortunate. It is fortunate. And in these troubling times for all of us, I'm blessed to have a wife of three decades, got married late, and thank God we feel the same way about important issues like gun mm -hmm. control, like Donald mm -hmm. Trump. God forbid you had a different feeling. I mean, have you ever thought how hard it would be if you and Lonnie weren't sim simpatico on these I issues that even, matter? I can't imagine because I do know people that are married to someone who thinks very differently than they do or uh, politically uh, they're different. And I, I've seen the struggle uh, even among survivors that we have worked with through the years now. Um, so, yeah, that it makes for a very difficult life on top of a very difficult life. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it's lucky that he survived given his redneck father. That's his description, <laughs> right? And, uh, oh, yeah. my God, that poor dog story. I'm not going to give away your book, but... I think the other a remarkable thing, you growing up in Long Beach and him in Texas, is that you both were acquainted with firearms through your parents. Mm -hmm. Tell, tell yeah. everybody about that. Well, um, my dad loved to hunt and fish. Uh, and my mother joked that she had to learn how to hunt and fish or she would never see my dad. <laughs> so she became... Uh, a, a good shot, uh, and she enjoyed fishing, fortunately. Now, where was this? Because you were born in St. Louis. In Long Lo Beach. Oh, okay. In yeah. Oh, yeah. But it was in, it was in Long Beach. Uh, I, I know, but where, where, where did your parents meet? Oh, they met, uh, actually, they met at a USO dance uh, in St. Louis. Right. And, and you were born um, in St. Louis, am I right? I was. I was, but left there as soon as they could get out of right. there. They left and came to, to California. Uh, they both left with, with my grandmother, me, a dog, 
no jobs and one car. And they got, they drove straight through to California. And within the first week they were there, they had a place to rent. Um, Both of them found jobs and had bought another car so they could go to work. Um, So one of those amazing stories, you know, this is is, money in your hand and a dream and hope. Right, and but your, your dad's hunting and fishing had come from middle America, right? And he took it with him. It had come, actually, he grew up in Louisiana. All right, there you so, go. So, yeah, he was always a, a an outdoor guy anyway. And uh, when I was 10, uh, I had gone hunting and fishing with him because I had to. <laughs> but at the age of 10, my dad bought me a, sh- a, a shotgun, a 410. Um, and made me go to, get this, NRA safety school, where I was the only girl in the class. And um, I was also the best shot in the class. And uh, we would go off for the weekends uh, about once every two or three months and go out to the desert and shoot dove. And my dad was a big believer, anything you shoot, you eat. So my dad came up with a, a great barbecue recipe that fit dove perfectly, and we would eat dove. And how many good bites can you get out of a decent dove? Uh, about two. <laughs> so you had to kill a lot of them in order to eat them. But uh, we usually did all right. And if we didn't, then we'd go out and buy some ribs. I have eaten a dove bar. But that I've never been a hunting and fishing person. So it's kind of like when I make arguments about gun control, it's uh, you're an urban Jew. What do you know about guns? Uh, and- you know, that, that that is such a poor argument um, on the other side. You know, if you don't hunt, if you don't know guns, then you don't have the right to speak. Baloney. What we do know about guns is they were designed for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to kill. And I got to know about guns because it uh, tied into my practice as prosecutor for 16 years. And sadly, a lot of people were getting shot to death in Colorado. And a lot of times it was by juveniles wielding handguns they had stolen from good people in burglaries or car break-ins. And some parents got fed up enough that with me, they formed an organization called Punch. People United, no children's handguns. 1993, Ron and Marva Hicks, they lost their son to Ron on the streets of Montbello by another kid who looked like Opie, who had an assault weapon that his mother had bought him for his 16th birthday. They got into a little argument. Ron couldn't believe it was a real gun. He thought it was a squirt gun. Boom, shot to death. Lives destroyed. And I did prosecute that mother, Debbie Sue Strait, for contributing to the delinquency of a minor because we had an assault weapon ban in Denver after the Allen Berg murder, and she had bought it in Aurora and violated it by uh, by the Denver statute, and it stuck, and she went to prison like this Michigan mom. Thanks for letting me divert, but you know what? We got special legislation, Roy Romer, we brought James Brady to town, uh, the Dems. A lot of people were part of it, but the NRA fought us. They said, okay, we'll go with the law, but we'll make it a petty offense. No, it's got to be serious. Got the law passed with the help of General Felix Sparks, who is a former Supreme Court justice who lost his grandson 
to handgun violence. We had a great session, brought James Brady to town, got the legislation, and we we disbanded after that because we accomplished our purpose. Sadly, though, what did we really get done? I mean, to see what happened, what was it, decades after, to your beautiful daughter? And, you know, I've been fighting this so long in Colorado. I know the history and I want to help, but nobody has taken that baton and run with it like you. And you've cycled through the organizations, and we're going to get there. But um, I want to tell a little more about you in Texas, because that's a good story. I asked Judge Ludig this on our episode 189. What is it about people in Texas that makes them want to come to Colorado all the time? Thank <laughs> What did he say? <laughs> Me. No. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I don't know what makes Texans Texans. Um, yeah, Lonnie has a better handle on that than than I do. But I do I do think that there is this mentality in Texas of, you know, the Lone Star State and we're independent and we're this and we're that. And um, other people that live in Texas are a little fed up with it, make it a little tired of it. Um, and they don't. I never felt free in Texas. I never felt safe in Texas. Um, I didn't overthink that, but it never felt like home. Um, and you, and live, I, you I lived teased. in San Antonio, am I right? And how, mm-hmm. how many how many years in Texas? 30 30, 30 years, and you never felt yeah. comfortable. No, never did. It never and, felt and, like home. And what about your daughter? Did you pass that on to her, do you think? No, she loved tech. In fact, when she moved to Colorado, she said, you can take Texas, you can take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of the girl. Of course, I also think that was part of her persona that she was developing to to stand out uh, among other people in Denver with her career choice. So uh, I don't know. I'll never really know because she's gone and I don't get to ask now. But she would, uh, after a beer, she would start saying, y'all, uh, <laughs> you know? So I think a lot of it was just uh, a way of being unique and different. But she was proud, or she grew up in Texas. And I yes. just, I guess, being a Denverite, um, I just noticed a lot of Texas people come to Denver. And Jesse, yeah. Je- what year oh, did she, what year did Jesse go ahead? She moved, uh, she moved there. What year was it? Um, 2000, it was one year and just a few days before. So it was 2011, um, on the 4th of July. Uh, and she just, she had been there off and on many times and she just loved Denver. She loved everything about Denver. And when she got there, she just, it was like, she, fell into exactly where she was supposed to be. She loved the sunsets. She loved the mountains. She loved skiing. She loved hiking. She loved everything, really, truly everything about it. Did, did, you, um, think, did you think that would happen? I didn't know what to expect. It was really the first time that she had been that far away from us. Um and she, I remember after I moved her there and we got her all set up and 
we had left the the next week she's calling me almost every day saying i made a mistake i need to come home i made a mistake i need to come home it was like take a breath you'll be okay you know you'll you you'll know something i don't know anyone here you'll know someone soon enough you know and she did know a few people but they were older and established in their career she didn't know anyone her in her age group at all um well within two weeks that had totally changed and she was fine and she was on a roll and enjoying her life and feeling um a sense of accomplishment and in that year that she was in denver before she was killed um lonnie and i saw her grow into the young lady and the woman that we always thought she would become and we were so proud of her and so proud of her choices and so proud of the the lessons she was learning and um she would call me and say oh i really blew this or i really blew that well what would you learn from that and she would tell me in very adult like ways that you know this is what i learned from that and um that's when as a mother especially you can kind of sit back and go okay job well done you know she she's on her own she she can do this now so um yeah we were very very proud of her we we say that Jessie was living her best life and she had her her fingers around that gold brass ring that you get on the carousel and she was leaning into it and had her fingers right in it, and it was ripped away. You know what she was trying to do when she was in Denver? She was on radio, right? And she was good at it. Yeah. She was very good at it. In fact, the people that, you know, worked with her uh, said, you know, there was no doubt that she was going to be very successful. I know. I know. I'm just saying she was trying to kick my ass because I was on Denver (laughs) radio then, and I know that sports talk world, and she was a natural. And I know a lot of the women who are ascendant in that uh, field. I mean, I've had them on as guests, Susie Wargen uh, and, and Katie Wingy, and she w- could have been just as good as any of them. That was her ambition. It must hurt you to watch these female sportscasters who are doing such great jobs. Your daughter would have been a pioneer in that field. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. She had she had what they call the whole package. She had the knowledge, she had the brains, she had the looks, she had the figure, she had the capability. Um she could write, she could she could go on air on radio, she could go on air with TV. She was just she really was a natural at it. And she had you as a mom and she'd proven that she's tough because she had medical challenges. With the help of her beautiful mama, Aunt Lonnie, she went through that. You dealt with it, surgery after surgery, and she was on the other side, right? Yeah. In fact, her boyfriend um, always thought that if he got that phone call, that it would be because of her heart. Um, But her heart was fine. And when he did get that phone call to hear that she had been shot and killed, um, it was... was, uh, he said, I, that's one, he said, that, that's one I never, never would have guessed, you know. Well, here's what I would have guessed, sadly, in America, which is yes. that I knew that I had you booked for the week of Parkland, which affected us all and changed Valentine's Day for me. 
February 14th, mm -hmm. I think about Jamie Guttenberg and all the poor kids and mm -hmm. their courage in standing up and fighting this fight uh, that I thought maybe we could have put aside like decades ago. Anyway, we didn't. And then, sad to say, another mass shooting, Kansas City. And this one's pretty profound because everybody can picture being at the Nuggets parade. I was. Nuggets coach Michael Malone has spoken out. Thank you, coach. Yay. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yes. And Greg Popovich, San Antonio coach, has been outspoken well, on these things. Do you know him? <laughs> I have a great story about Please, Pop. please. You know, he you know, he coached at the Air Force Academy for Colorado Connection. And he, he and Malone are, are close. So please, take all your time with Popovich stories. This is a great pop story. Um, Jesse was doing an internship at Fox um, in San Antonio, and she was assigned to always do the interviews on the opposing team. So she said, I, I know I'm never going to get to interview pop, but I'm going to learn so much. And she would watch pop do an interview. And whenever pop doesn't like a question, he always repeats it back to the reporter and gives them an opportunity to re-ask that question because it's obvious he doesn't like the way you have asked it. So she, she said, boy, if I ever get to, to meet Coach Pop and ask a question, I'm going to have three different ways of asking the same question so he doesn't do that to me, right? Lonnie and I are up in Maine um several years ago and Lonnie who doesn't follow any sports I mean he's the most non-sport person you'd ever want to meet and he's sitting at this restaurant and he's looking inside the restaurant and I'm looking out at the the ocean and he says that sure looks like Greg Popovich and I said what would Greg Popovich be doing here you know this is Maine you know and he said yeah, you're right. And we went on and he said, God, it sure does look like Greg Popovich. And I turned around and I looked, and I went, oh my God, that is Greg Popovich. <laughs> and he said, well, see, I did recognize him because Lonnie has facial recognition issues. So he says, I, I actually recognized him. So I have a little more uh, courage sometimes than Lonnie does. So I walked right up to him. And I said, are you Greg Popovich? And he said, no, I'm um, Brad, Pitt. Brad Pitt. He said, no, I'm Brad Pitt. And I said, I knew I recognized you. And he laughed. And I said, I won't take much of your time. I just want to tell you about my daughter and her experience with being an intern and then proceeded to tell him that she had been killed. And he goes, oh, my God, that's your daughter. You know, he realized who it was immediately. And then I told him the story about having three different ways of asking a question. So he never looked at her and said, repeated the question back to her. And uh, it was one of those moments that I thought, wow. You're giving me chills. Jesse, oh my God. Well, Jesse should have, Jesse should have been able to have that opportunity. Sure. She and, 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 <sighs> I bet Popovich remembers talking this. to him. Yeah, nobody. yeah, he probably does. You know, being in his all the way up in Maine and 
and all of that. He probably does remember that. And I hope that our paths cross again sometime. And I can tell him that that meant a lot to me as as well. Right. But, you know? but I mean, Jesse's death had to be covered in the San Antonio media. Oh, big time. And, and Popovich time. was there, right? Yeah. So he knew about your daughter. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I knew about your daughter, but I'm just starting to get to know you. And uh, I, I do hope more coaches and players speak out on this issue. Don't you? You know, your lips to God's ears. Yes, I do. Um, and I'm hoping with this Kansas City shooting that more will. And I hope that when they do, they don't align themselves with some of the big gun violence prevention groups, because that's who seems to right. swoop in and get get them. And um, they become spokesperson. I'm thinking of, of uh, oh, what's his name? Curry. Um and anyway, it doesn't matter who they are that that do a lot of almost being spokespeople for right. these big organizations who, you know, they they've been around for a long time. They have deep pockets, but I turn around and, and say, what have they really accomplished? And it's really these small um, groups like like ours. Um, but it's the smaller groups that are really doing the heavy lifting and getting the real work done while they're out busy doing the fundraising and, uh, you know, doing what they want to with the money. And sometimes that involves very large salaries. Right. And when you get too big, that's why I was proud of Punch. We did our thing, then we dissolved, you know, and that's perfect. Perfect. I always tell people that are thinking about starting a, a new organization that if you're going to do it, do it for a very specific reason. Be very specific. If it's a law that you want to get passed, get focused totally on that and then dissolve. And that's what they did with the um, gay marriage act up in, in Washington state. Uh, they went in for what was it? Three years. I think it was about three years. They went in and said, we're going to get this done within five years or we walk away, uh, or right. you know, we get it done. And they got it done and closed it up and walked away. And that's the way it should be done. Right. Otherwise, then, you have no real reason to do the work. Yeah, up until that law, you described getting a shotgun when you were 10, but you could give a fourth grader for his birthday a Colt 45 revolver. You know, there was no yeah. problem with that, but we had to create a law. You can't do and, that anymore. And no storage laws. Right. You know, so even if you if you have a loaded gun on top of your refrigerator, that's perfectly legal and and uh, it's okay. You know, it's not responsible, but it's perfectly okay, and we need to change that. All right, here's one thing, and I bet you know I've I've lost my brother, my parents, and sometimes you go through hard times and you say, I'm glad they didn't have to experience this, or you know, yes. but what you're saying is just this. This part of life, right? There's a bad thing that's bothering us all. But I'm thinking with Jesse, at least she didn't have to experience the downturn in radio because the markets dropped out of that. You know what I mean? So, and I did she was she political at all? Your Jesse, or was no. she like most young people, not even giving she it a was, thought? Yeah, she was like most young people. Although I think it would have changed, especially if she had returned to Texas. 
um, because of all the laws that have have happened down there, uh, all the rights that have been taken away. I think she would have gotten involved and I think she would have been because um, she was sassy and she was she has had her opinions. And I think she would have gotten very involved um, and very concerned about where uh, not only Texas, but where the country was going. But she got a wake up call to reality, though in Toronto. Tell everybody about Toronto and how you felt as a mother, because, you know, a lot of people have to guess. I wonder what my daughter thought after mass shooting. You don't have to guess. Tell everybody. Well, Jesse had gone up to Toronto to visit her boyfriend and his family um, after their dog had died, and they were all very, very upset about losing this family pet that had been with them for, I guess, about 15 years. Um, so she flew up and spent, spent, I guess it was a long weekend and they were at the Eaton Center Mall in Toronto and they had gone to get her favorite food, which was sushi. And they were standing in line and, um, she turned to, to her boyfriend and said, you know what? I, I think I've changed my mind. I, I've got a strange feeling. Do you mind if we leave and get something somewhere else? And he said, that's fine. And they left, and three minutes later, uh, shooting happened um, in Toronto, in in the mall there, at the very spot that they had been standing. And one person was killed; um, several were wounded. Uh, and she she saw the aftermath of that. She saw the chaos. She saw the the people that were wounded and the dead being carried out on stretchers. Um, she actually gave a TV interview about what she had witnessed and she called me and, um, I didn't get the phone call. I was outside and I'd left my phone inside. Um, and I came in and I heard her message and I could tell she was very upset. And I called her back and she said, uh, this is what happened. This is what I saw. This is what I witnessed. And I said, you have witnessed the be- the worst of mankind today, and um, you'll never see anything like that again. And seven weeks later, I was burying my daughter. Yeah, it was part of a terrible year. Your book chronicles 2012. Thoroughly disgusting. I remember I was. Yeah, it was one of the best, it was one of the worst years um, until recent. Recently, where we are having mass shootings almost on a daily occurrence. Yeah, you bring up Sandy Hook, and you mentioned it happened on Hanukkah. And, uh, yeah, now we think about a lot of holidays spoiled by gun violence. It's disgusting. And, and yet at the time, we had leaders who seemed to respond in a moral, decent way and I'm playing the sound of you right after you met with Barack Obama. I mean, I I don't want to go into the details of July 20th, how horrible it was. We all know what happened in the Aurora Theater Massacre. One good rule we've learned since Columbine elsewhere, we don't say the guy's name. We may circle back to the litigation, but we learned, we try to learn lessons. I was on O'Reilly the Monday after that tragedy, and he asked me what the case would be about and I said uh, he's obviously going to plead insanity and the only issue is whether he's going to get the death penalty or not he asked me what it thought I said well though I said in this group of victims it's so large 
he said, well, what will the victims think? I said, I'm sure there will be a wide range of opinion about everything. There's such a massive number of people, and I had seen that in Columbine, too. Anyway, Mm -hmm. you try to speak, and it did play out that way, and we'll get to the trial, et cetera, but tell us whatever you want about you know, that awful call and coming to Colorado and then culminating with you meeting with Barack Obama and what what, what that was like. You know, our, our lives uh, were changed in an instant. Um, we were in San Antonio. Jesse was in Denver. Um, I had gone to bed that night and I woke up. And one of those nights where you've only had an hour or two of sleep, but it feels like you've been sleeping all day or all night. So I woke up and I was like wide awake and I knew I wasn't going to go back to sleep. So I got out of bed and I went into the living room and I started texting with uh, Jesse. Um, so I texted her and, and um, said, are you are you still up? And she said, yeah, we're at the movies. And I said, okay, well, I'll just talk with you tomorrow. And um, she said, mom, go back to sleep, get some rest. I can't wait to see you Tuesday. I really need my mama. And I wrote back and I said, I really need my baby girl. And that was the last thing we said to one another. And uh, about 30 minutes later, uh, my phone rang and it was the young man that was with her and his icon came up and, and the young man that was with her was very much like a son to us. He actually moved into our house when she moved out um, and went to, he went to school uh, living with us uh, his, his college years. So um, I was like, when his icon pop, popped up, and I was like, well, what is, what is he doing calling me there at the movies? And I picked it up and I said, hey, babe, what's up? And I could hear screaming in the background and just chaos everywhere and, and people hysterical. And he said, there's been a shooting. And I, I, I said, he said, it's, it's random. It's, but there's been a shooting. And I said, are you okay? And he said, I think I've been hit twice. And when he said that, I was like, okay, where's Jesse? Why isn't she calling me? And I said, where's Jesse? And he said, I tried. And I said, "Um, is she okay, Brent? And he said, I'm sorry, I tried. And I let out a scream and Brent hung up at the same time. I later found out he hung up because the police had come in. Um, But um, I let out a scream, which woke Lonnie up, and he came out of the bedroom, and I was sliding down the wall, screaming, Jesse's dead, Jesse's dead. And, of course, I don't remember that at all, but that, that is what happened, and he kind of carried me into the living room and um, asked me how I knew that Jesse was dead. And Brent was a fire fireman, so I knew he knew what was what. And um, he said, Brent told me. And, uh, and so that at that moment, everything changed. And, and I called my son, uh, and he came over. 
and he would not let us go to Denver. He said he was going to go. And um, so he left and he went on to Denver and posted on then Twitter um, that his sister had been one of the victims in the shooting. So that kind of alerted the media. So when he landed and her friends met him and took him over to all the places, first over to the um, the theater area, he was doing he was doing interviews immediately. Uh, and mind you, this this young man was only twenty five, twenty six years old at the time, um, and he was wonderful. He did a great job. He called me from. Um, from there and and told me, asked me what we wanted to do as far as a service. And I said, well, something private, you know, just the family. And he said, oh, mom, this is an international story. You're going to need one of the mega churches. And it was at that moment that I realized, oh, okay, this is big. My daughter is really dead. And my world is going to be totally different from this point forward. And it has been. Um, he also called me and said, uh, Mom, you're going to have to have her cremated because of her wounds. So that was the first time that I realized that her little body had been so massively destroyed um, that I wasn't going to get to say goodbye. And everything moved so quickly that um, I didn't get a lock of her hair. And I wish that I'd been aware enough to have asked for that. I do remember asking Jordan if he had to identify her, and thankfully he didn't because she was a redhead and um, she did have a tattoo um, that she and I share. Um, so they were able to identify her that way. I was very affected by the story of the tattoo because it's a Hebrew word, Mizpah, and it was on the mm -hmm. arch of the Union Station in Colorado, yeah. not just somewhere yeah. from that Union Station in Kansas City where the shooting happened. But Mizpah also is kind of part of that St. Louis arch where you were born. But Mizpah, yeah. tell everybody what that means to you and what it meant to your daughter, Jessie. <clears throat> it's the Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. And um, when I was 12, I had a boyfriend who is still in my life. We're still friends to this day, who gave me half a Ms. Paw as a Valentine's present, interestingly enough. And he kept the other half. Um, and Jesse had found a Ms. Paw necklace. And she gave Lonnie half and she kept half. So Ms. Paw became important to, to Jesse the same way it, it did me um, and very meaningful. And she um, she came home one day and she goes, I want to get 
I want to get a tattoo. And I said, oh, honey, you don't want a tattoo. She goes, no, I really do. And I want it in your handwriting. This is how good she was at manipulating. (laughs) She says, remember how much Mama, my mother's handwriting meant to me after she died. She said, do you remember how much Mama's handwriting meant to you? And I said, yes. And she said, well, someday you might not be here and I want to have Ms. Pa in your handwriting so I can always look at it and have your handwriting. (laughs) And I went, okay, you win. (laughs) It was that simple, you win. So um, I took her down and I said, okay, you can get it, but it has to be lower part of your body, you know, ankle, foot, you know, something like that. So she elected to have it on her foot. And uh, then when she passed, her friends and I uh, all went down and had Ms. Paw written. Oh, what so. a story. So beautifully yeah. told. At the end of that awful year uh, of 2012, Sandy Hook happened. Yep. And uh, and even Donald Trump, private citizen, then supported Obama's calls for gun control, right? In a tweet. You put that in your book. Amazing. Amazing, isn't it? Well, not really yeah. one you consider after Parkland. He also said, hey, red flag laws are good. We should take the guns first. And he, then he got beat back because he, for a moment, he had a, a human... Let's not get off on him right now. Let's get back to Barack. <laughs> let's, let's let's get back to Barack Obama because I I did meet the guy at the tattered cover downtown once, but not like you I guys. I remember when he was there. I remember, and and uh, a friend of mine got a really good picture of him coming out, um, and it looked like he was smiling right into the camera for him. It was a great shot. Yeah. Yeah, what a day I had. I sat in the line and watched everybody come through, and I read his book like I read yours. I was getting ready for a show. Then he thought he was done. He was happy when he left because he wanted to smoke a cigarette, but that's okay. <laughs> He's a human being, as he proved to you. Tell, tell us tell us your encounters with Barack Obama. Well, first I'd like to back up a little bit sure. and talk about please. Sandy Hook. Yeah, please um, do. Sandy Hook happened five months after our shooting, and it was um, it was obviously very huge. It happened, um, as you know from the book, it happened on the same day that we were flying into Denver to accept Jessie's diploma and speak to her, what would have been her graduating class from Metro. And um, we were approached that same day. Can can we fly into New York and do a press conference with Mayor Bloomberg? Um, and we said, Well, no, we're speaking on Sunday. We can't leave. Da 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 da. da. And they said, Well, if we fly you in immediately after you speak, can you come? And we discussed it and said, Yes, we can do that. Well, that led to a response directly, um, or the opportunity for us to respond directly to the Sandy Hook families. And um, Lonnie and I said yes to that immediately. And we were in the um, the community center as some of the families came in. And that was when I said to Lonnie, I said, you know, it's only been five months for us, but we can help these people. And from that point on, we started responding to uh, mass shootings and have gone to 21 now, I believe. Um, and the last one that 
I went to uh, was Ubaldi. So we've got the bookends of elementary schools being shot up in our country and nothing being done. Um, but after Sandy Hook happened, there was a huge surge on, we've got to do something. We've got to at least do bat background checks. Uh, I remember asking one large or gun violence prevention organization, are you going to ask for um, some kind of man on assault weapons, um, either, you know, grandfather them in or, you know, whatever we have to do, but we have to do something because this is becoming routine. And I was told that that was um, using too much political capital and that uh, we had to go for low-hanging fruit, which was the background check bill. And as you know, we couldn't even get the background check bill done. But that led to several meetings with the, the White House and other people. Um, my husband responded to um, an invite to be on the task force with Joe Biden and uh, talk about what could be done and how it could be done. Um, and that ended up leading to several invitations to the White House uh, over the years now. And uh, that's how we ended up um seeing and being around Barack Obama, but the first time was uh, a meeting that he had in Denver. And uh, there were about 35, 40 people in the room. And we were uh, two of, I believe, three or four survivors in the room. They're all The rest of them were all politicos and uh, people involved in gun violence prevention, and we were just, at that point, just survivors. Uh, and as he came into the room, he walked up to Senator Bennett and hugged him and said, oh, my favorite senator. But it, anyway, he made the trip around the room. And as it turns out, I was sitting right next to the president. That's where my name tag was. I don't know how that happened, but there it was. And it was like, okay, I wasn't nervous before, but now I'm sitting right next to the president of the United States. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> you know? But as he came around and as charming as this man can be, he gave me this wonderful big hug and told me how sorry he was for our loss and then sat down and proceeded to have this meeting. And it was just one of those moments where you sit there and you go, Okay, I was a, just a mom from Texas, you know, raising my children, um, happily married, working hard. And uh, here I am sitting next to the president of the United States just months later and having a conversation with him about why America seems to be so dysfunctional. Um, you know, how does that happen? I don't know. I don't know how these things happen, but uh, he used the right words. I mean, you are the expert on approaching grieving families. Let me take a guess, because I've had a tiny fraction of your experience. It is nice to say, sorry for your loss. There are no better words than that. And then to listen. And wouldn't you agree that everybody grieves in their own way, right? There are commonalities, but... There are such variations. We do a whole thing on what not to say <laughs> to somebody who has just gone through this. Um, because e even e 
even well-meaning people will say horrible things. And your job as a human being, holding another human being's grief, is just to hold that grief. It's not to say anything other than, I'm sorry, I wish I could do something. Um, holding that hand, uh, it, there's just absolutely nothing anyone can give to you except that love and that attention at that moment. And it, as a grieving mother, I'm not expecting anything from you other than to be kind. Just be kind. Yes. that That's a rare commodity these days. What about Jessie? She was kind, right? Didn't she? Oh, love, she loved all things living, right? Yeah, she did. And she would go out of her way to help others. In fact, I remember getting a phone call right after she was killed. I mean, like the next day. And um, I think it was the New York Times. And, and I said, you know, she would have been the first one to try to help this person. And she would have been. She would have been the first person to have listened to this, the pain that this individual had. Um, and she also would have known that it wasn't her responsibility to fix it, but she would have been kind. Right. And on this issue that means so much to you and the Sandy Hook parents and scores of other victims of handgun violence and just single shot incidents like Teron Hicks, I mean, they they just want people to feel the issue in their kishkas. And it's hard to assess another person. You met Barack Obama, but Joe Biden has just announced again he wants an assault weapon ban. And I think he really feels it. And another guy who responded to the Aurora Theater Massacre that I admire because I think he feels it in his kishkas is your fellow Texan, Beto O'Rourke. Have you met him? And is he uh, is he the real deal when it comes to this he issue? Is, he is such the real deal. And um, not only have we met him, we have had beers with him. We have been to his home. We have met his family. Um, we have had a, a Zoom call with other survivors where I've invited him to attend. And these were survivors from all over the world. Uh, not all of world, excuse me, survivors from all over the country. So it wasn't, oh, yeah, I need to do that because they're Texans and they're going to vote for me. Um, it wasn't that at all. He just cares. And so he came on um, this Zoom call that we had with about 15, 20 other survivors. And uh, after, you know, I ask him what his views were and why he felt the way he did. And afterwards I said, you know, thank you very much. You're welcome to stay with us if you'd like to, and, and, you know, get a, get a, a beer or, you know, we're all having a drink here. So if you'd like to join us, you're more than welcome to. He said, I'd love to do that. And he excused himself, went and had a beer, came back and stayed on the whole time that we were talking. And it was just, that's a real person, you know, that's not somebody who's just doing it to, to uh, get a vote. Um, that's somebody who truly cares. Yeah. And then it, so hit, it, it, and then it hit his community, El Paso too. And he was involved before. El Paso then. and Uvalde. I mean, and Uvalde is not that right. far. And yeah. he's in a better world. He would be, 
your U.S. senator from Texas, but in our deviant world, he came to Aurora to express sympathy, and he got attacked from the crowd by Lauren Boebert. Do you remember that? And she launched her I was there. Tell us about that. Um, well, <laughs> he was there, uh, and he was he was doing he was doing his shtick, and he is so good at being who he is. And he was up there, and she was heckling him, and had a gun on her, and she was heckling him, and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I said, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Just shut up. And he turned to me, I was standing kind of behind him at a 45 degree angle. And he turned to me and he just put his hand out like, I got this. And then proceeded to just take her down, listen to her, and then took every point that she was trying to make and made her sound as stupid as she is. <laughs> so it was it was one of those beautiful beautiful moments and uh and that's when i really learned how good he is at uh being able to to put people in their place with facts um so it was it was one of those beautiful moments i know but in this bizarre world she's in the united states congress and he's not He's lost a couple of races, and she keeps winning. And as unpopular as she is in parts of Colorado, once she gets mega endorsement in a crowded field, look for her to be a congresswoman from the fourth CD and pitching the proposition that more guns make America more safe and taking money from— If that were the case, if, if, if more guns make us safer— then we would be the safest country in the on the planet. And we're certainly not. We're far, 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 far from it. And, you know, yes, yeah, she is a congresswoman currently. Um, I hope that the people in the fourth are smart enough to, to go, no, 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 we're, we're done with this. But the problem is Citizens United and the money that gets poured into these campaigns Um and the backing that she gets from Koch brothers and you know, the oil companies. And you know, I mean, she's, she's just a, she's a shill. Right. And then RA has fallen apart. You have beautiful chapters about that. Back in 1993, we battled them and I saw that they were horrible. Then even worse groups came to be in Colorado, as you know. And <laughs> even though, Dan Array has been exposed, humiliated. They're in bed with Putin. You can go into that. There will be other organizations to replace them, right? Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you cut the head off of one snake and five others pop up. You know, it's, it's um, but that doesn't mean you don't keep chopping. Right, right. <laughs> you know? And how much of it, how much to, of it, have to, yeah. how, much of, how much of it is financed by, Big firearm industry. Where where does the money oh. come from? You know, you look at NSSF, and you know they're very quiet. A lot of people don't even know who NSSF is. Who are they? And National Sports Found uh, Shooting. Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, and they used to be literally a mile away from Sandy Hook. They've since relocated 
just in the last couple of years. Um, but they're they're in many ways, I think, worse than the NRA. The NRA is they're out there. They tell you exactly how they think, how they feel, what they're going to do, and the money that they're spending on doing it. Um, but the NSSF, they're very quiet and they pretend to play nice when they're not playing nice at all. Um, so, you know, it's groups like that, that, that worry me. Um, the, the gun owners of America who are very radical, they worry me. They're all about, uh, militias and, uh, you know, more guns and heavier equipment. And, you know, it's, if it's, you know, if they can shoot it, it's mine, uh, kind of thing. And it always cracks me up when I hear people say, well, I've got four AR-15s in case there's a reason for a tyrannical government and I need to stand up. And it's like, have you ever heard of drones and rockets? Because your four or 15 or 50 AR-15s ain't going to amount to anything if there's a tyrannical government. They're just going to come in and blow your little butt to pieces. So, you know, But they believe that. They, they don't have that uh, critical thinking skill, if you will. Right. Um, and they don't so, have they don't have role models telling them bullshit. When I was on the radio, I would flesh that stuff out. But now you got to go along, get along. They're coming after your guns and you need more and we're going to scare you to death. It just makes me sick. And then our race. It's, it's all based on fear. Right. It's and, all and, and, based and, on fear. Yeah. And Putin exploited it. Right. You know, I met that oh. sheriff, David Clark. I've had him on the radio. He came to Colorado for promotional stuff. He's 6'5. I'm 6'5. So we stood eye to eye. He had that cowboy hat on. I thought he was going to be a big made guy in MAGA, but he was even a little too wacky for them. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there are a few that are, are so outlandish. I mean, poor George Santos. Right. <laughs> but they usually don't eat their own. They, you and know, they, they usually just... don't carry a badge and have big jobs. But unfortunately, there are increasingly a lot of law enforcement carrying this mega banner. It makes me sick as a former prosecutor. It, it does me too because they're the ones that are paying the the ultimate price. They're they're outgunned on the streets. Let me tell you who else I encountered in my many debates. And I debated in the early eighties. David Copel. He and I did mm -hmm. it on a Boulder Public Radio station. He's part of your book, and he's one of the more intellectual proponents of the NRA. And at least he has the good sense to rip Dudley Brown in that movement, and he's done it. Uh, in that way. But I encountered a charlatan, a con man in the worst tradition of mega, had him on once or twice, never had him on again because I could see he was full of crap. But it doesn't stop everybody and their brother and sister from having on Dr. John Lott. John oh, Lott. Gosh. He is a darling of right wing radio, Fox yes. News, and he comes and up. He's been Right. He's been debunked so many times and caught in his lies. And, and of course, then there's Mary. Uh, um, oh, his the, the, the woman that he made up. Um, Mary Rosh, Mary Rosh. And he made it, up somebody. Know. I mean, the guy. Oh, yeah. 
I, oh yeah. Mary Rosh, who just, you know, thinks he's everything. It's kind of like Donald Trump with his um, other persona that right. he, he calls it. Yeah, same thing. John, John um, Barron it, calling about my friend, Donald Trump. He's dating the hottest chicks. He's yeah, that's what you're talking about. Being the own press person. That's what John Lott did. Yes. Yes. Um, and she, she, anyway, she doesn't exist, but yeah, anyway, he's, I mean, he's but he exists and he's got a doctor in front of his name and he holds himself out as I've studied this, that, and the other, you have a beautiful part of your book undressing him thoroughly and it's a racket. <laughs> There's money to be yeah. made in all of this, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about. Ultimately, it's all about the money. Um, but, you know, we've got people on, on the other side uh, that are really doing the research and are legitimate and can prove it. Where, where, where do you go for your best stats? My best stats are GVpedia, a young man by the name of Devin Hughes. Wait, um, is that G-Bird Gun? GVpedia. Gun Violence, violence Prevention. Pedia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and um, then there's uh, the uh, Gun Violence Archive, who tracks all gun deaths, what kind they are. Um, you know, he just breaks it down, and he's being used now. All the all, I can't think of a media uh, space that isn't using his his data now. It's so good. Here's the worst data that I confronted arguing against these NRA guys, that there are all these cases of legitimate self-defense. I saved my yeah. family. As a, and you know what? As a prosecutor, you would have heard about this, right? I, and I did hear about occasions, and I occasions. made sure those people weren't prosecuted when it was a legitimate self-defense situation. So right. I was aware of those situations when I was in intake part of the DA's office said, you're just making this up. It's it's a tiny fraction of incidents. Anyway. Absolutely. They, they won't Absolutely. give it Absolutely. But, it, but it, it, it adds to the fear. Right. And the paranoia of the public that thinks, oh, my God, that could happen to me. I need to have a gun. And then you ask people, you know, have you ever been broken into? Well, no. You know, have you ever had to use your weapon to defend yourself? Well, no, but I've got it in case of. And it's like, well, you know, I've got arsenic in case of, you know, but I don't plan on using it. I don't need it. You know, so you just have to, the logic behind it. And right. then they leave them out where kids can get to them or, you know, or somebody who is sick or suicidal um, can get their hands on them, and and then they right. they and just then, shrug their shoulders like, "Well, I didn't know." And oh, then well. when doctors ask about it, because they realize the health risk, number one threat of death to kids right now. Come on, we have a problem. We have to be able to talk about it, and that's what we are doing right here. And we'll talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. We talked about my short-lived organization, Successful Punch, with Felix Sparks and the Hicks family and other families joined in. But you got approached to be part of all sorts of groups. And uh, some experiences were good, some were bad. And there are people who want to make money off the death of your daughter, off of you. There are grifters yeah. on all sides of this. So let's call it Absolutely. out there, too. Yeah. 
Absolutely. A lot of the gun violence um, uh, prevention organizations uh, really pretend to care about survivors uh, and really don't. It's just a way for them to uh, fundraise. So they use their stories, they manipulate, they, uh, we used to call it, doesn't happen a whole lot anymore, the new bling. And it would be the, the newest uh, group of survivors affected by a mass shooting. And there'd be maybe one family or one person that was willing to speak out and speak up. And that person got elevated like a star and, um, and then they'd be used, abused and the next shooting would happen. And that person would be raised up. And, you know, and the problem with that is that there is room. First of all, there's room for all voices, all survivor voices. And, our mission, Lonnie's and my mission in the last 12 years has been sure that survivors' voices are being heard authentically. That just because you're such and such gun violence prevention group, you're not going to tell me what my story needs to be. You're not going to rewrite it for me. It's my story. I own it. You don't own it. Um, but sometimes new survivors don't realize that and they really get abused. And that that's heartbreaking, and I've seen it enough. Um, but the newer survivors now don't align themselves with anyone right away. They're they're seeming to take a step back and saying, "Why do I need them?" The problem is sometimes they get information wrong. Um, they're so passionate about making change happen that. They jump in in the deep end. They haven't done their studying yet. They haven't been educated really on the subject matter yet. And, and they'll go out and say, we need an assault weapons ban without knowing what that really means and what it entails and what it looks like. And uh, it just sounds good to them. And it sounds like it's something that will get done. Um, so we're trying very hard to make sure that we have a toolkit um, that we we did with the Giffords organization, uh, Survivor Toolkit, to help new survivors of gun violence and help them navigate uh, what what they need to do right now, today, right after it's happened, and then what do I need down the road? And if I want to get involved in the the movement, how do I go about doing that? So um, you know, it's it's really about wellness for us. For Lonnie and myself, it's really about making sure that they're well and they're never going to be the same ever. And you can't you can't fake that. You can't go into someone and say, it's all going to be OK. In a couple of years, you're going to get over this and you're going to be fine. Uh, uh It changes everything. And the trauma is so severe that you may or may not be able to return to work. You may or may not be able to keep your family together. You may or may not get involved with gun violence prevention, but it doesn't have to be immediate. And the ones that we see that do the best are the ones that take the step back and take care of themselves, get the help that they need to deal with the trauma that they've experienced, take care of their families, make sure that that's all good, and then they slowly get involved. And those are the ones that 
have the longer life, shelf life, if you will, and are able to to stay the course and really get things accomplished. Tell everybody about your Survivors Empowered website. Survivors Empowered.org is our website, and um, we are involved in a, a few things this next year. Uh, we're involved with educating people on the PLACA law, which is the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act that we were able to repeal in Colorado last year. Um, and they changed the, the name of the law to Jesse's Act. So um, now we're working uh, with a couple of other uh, uh, states that are working on repealing PLACA, and we're working at the national level to also get senators and congressmen on board with trying to repeal it as well, because we know the president wants it repealed. Um, and we know it's it's one way to get the um, the gun industry to hold itself accountable. It's the only way because right now they're immune from any prosecution. We will put that in the show notes. Everybody can go there. I was pleased to see Daniel Mauser there. Boy, I mean, his memory, Tom Mauser, the dad, uh, he was- One he, of my heroes. Tom's life was altered. And just like you, he became- uh, a gun, common sense gun reform proponent, and uh, I have a lot of admiration for him and uh, for you. Who else should I admire? Does Michael Bloomberg, does he feel it in his kishkas? Is he still involved? Yeah, well, you know, he is because he he started the organization. Uh, it was Mayors Against Illegal Guns, and then it became Everytown. Right. And Moms Demand Action falls under that umbrella. Uh, so, yes, he is. Um, to what extent, I don't know. Shannon, uh, certainly... Shannon Watts? Yeah, Shannon Watts uh, has retired from her place in, at uh, with Moms Demand. Um, so, you know, people, you, you can only do this work so long. I, I mean, Lonnie and I have been at this longer than the majority. Um, right. And I don't think we could have done it had it not been a team, you know, we're very fortunate that we support each other. Most couples out there don't. We do have Manny and Patricia uh, Oliver from Parkland that are doing some interesting things, uh, artistic things, out of the box thinking. Um, so they're doing they're doing that. What kind about of the, work. the the Parkland kids, David Hogan, that group? No, David cooked dinner for us the last time we were in Washington D.C. <laughs> it was lovely. Is he a good guy? Um, I I adore him. I met him right after uh, what well, we were in Parkland, and I met him uh, shortly thereafter. And I remember pulling him off to one side, and they had had he had had some death threats that day, um, which is not uncommon, unfortunately. And I said, look, David, you're going to have a lot of people pulling on you and tugging and wanting you. And it's it can be heady. Um, it can also be frightening. And to be able to stay centered through that is very, very difficult. So just be sure that you're taking care of yourself. And it was literally two and a half, three years later, he pulled me off to one side at an event. And he said, you remember when you told me that I, I needed to take care of myself? And I said, yes. And he said, I had no idea what idea what you meant then. 
<laughs> he said, but I get it now. Mm-hmm. And he's he's doing wonderful things. He's still too busy for my liking. I would like him to be able to take um, more breaks to focus on self and um, wellness, but he's doing great work and I'm, I'm very proud of him. I am very proud of him. And how about, how about Gabby Giffords? Oh, I love Gabby. Who doesn't love Gabby? I I love Gabby. How could you not love Gabby? I mean, she's just. How can you not listen to her when she talks about these things? Well, you know, Lonnie and, and Mark, Lonnie's much older than Mark, but they have a resemblance. They're about the same size, about the same build, both bald. Um, and Gabby adores my husband. I mean, when she sees him, she will get to him as fast as she can and throw her arms around him and just hug on him. And I, I teased her the last time I saw her. And I said, you know, it's a good thing I'm not a jealous woman. You know, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely relationship there. And I, I adore her. Um, the first time I met her, I said, you know, the difference between you and my daughter um, because both of those were headshots. Um, I said, yours was with a nine millimeter and hers was with an AR-15. And that's why you're still here and why she's not. So we need to do something about that. And uh, that was our first encounter. And uh, we've been friendly ever since. You said those magic words, AR-15. And in that case, I described with uh, Teron Hicks, it was a Mac 11. What are these weapons doing in our state? They need to be gone. Jared Polis should stand up and do something about it. That's disappointing that he's not. But Joe Biden is standing up. Assault weapons, AR-15s, to watch the videos of what they do to a human body. It's disgusting. And then you, you draw the contrast, and I knew about it way back when, but You just compare Canada and America, where we have this AR-15 epidemic and all the other weapons versus Canada, which is in North America just like us. I thought that was a great part of your book. Just talk about AR-15s and why anybody would need to have one of those. Well, there's no reason why a citizen should have an AR-15. There's there's no reason. I I mean, they're designed not only to kill, but to kill with such a vengeance, with such extreme that, um, and most people don't realize that they see TV and, and they think, oh, it's a clean shot. Well, yeah, look at the where that bullet came out. I mean, in Jesse's case, I, I tell this every chance I get because I want it to imprint on the brain and the heart of the receiver. When Jesse was shot, she was shot six times. But the headshot, when the bullet came out, left a five-inch hole in the left orbital of her face. A five-inch hole. That's the size of my hand spread out in her left orbital. And it took from the orbital into the brain and destroyed her ability to recover or survive. I live with that every night when I go to sleep, every night when I go to sleep and I say goodnight to my daughter, I have that image. Hmm. 
the Uvalde families, that killer was able to get so close to those children that several of them had to be identified through their DNA because there wasn't enough left of them to be identified. This is what we're allowing to happen in our country to our children. How can anyone live with that? I was in a meeting with Ted Cruz and a Uvalde parents to the, the, the parents. And I was sitting next to the husband and he was leaning over with his phone, giving his phone to Cruz with a picture of his daughter's little coffin. Cruz could have cared less. Ted Cruz. Yes. My heart, I'd met with Ted Cruz several times. He's a total jerk. And his body language was such. And immediately after he looked at the picture, if he really looked at it, he said, well, gun control doesn't work. And with that, I stood up and walked out. I couldn't take it anymore because we know when we have had a ban on assault weapons, it worked. When we have good gun laws, our gun deaths go down. So having this jerk say something like that to these parents who had just lost their child weeks before um, was so horrendous, I couldn't hold my tongue and stay in that room. One law that works is red flag. And Trump said it before he got told not to say it by the NRA in his base. But the bottom line is the parade of horribles that was predicted in Colorado, it has not materialized. It's saved lives. It's uh, saved women in Florida, too. Right. They instituted it 12,000 times that law has been used in Florida. Twelve thousand times that's twelve thousand lives potentially that they have saved here in colorado we had a police officer zach parish the mm-hmm. third who got killed right on new year's eve his right. wife gracie parish spoke so powerfully at his funeral and when the red flag law was proposed and named after him just like that law is going to be named after jesse I put on a radio show on a conservative radio station advocating for it. And I had Tony Spurlock, the Douglas County Sheriff. I had uh, Zach Parrish's father from Texas. He was from Texas. And I had his widow, Grace. Gracie came on to make that pitch just like you are. And her courage. And George Brockler joined us. And George Brockler advocated for the red flag law. And we fell short because Republicans killed it in committee over Brockler's objection, whatever. And then the next year it came out and we had to round up the whole crew again. But George Brockler switched sides. Now, I know you know George Brockler, who's now going to run for Douglas County DA. Before we get to him exactly, well, we are kind to him because... I was a prosecutor for 16 years, and I had to deal. I never dealt with a mass murder like this, but I one of my first cases were four people shot in a Denver house, and then I had some celebrated shootings, horrible cases, and a death penalty case where we got 
the death penalty when Lorraine Martelli was stabbed to death after being carjacked on November 14, 1984. So I know about big cases, but there haven't been cases quite as big as the Aurora Theater Massacre, except for Columbine, but those two guys killed themselves. George Brockler prosecuted one of the uh, uh, phantom sales, right, at the Tanner Gun Show. He prosecuted the girl involved in that when he was prosecutor in Jeffco. The prosecutor was not George Brockler at the time of the crime, right? It was Carol Chambers, who I know well, and she was a conservative Republican talking about capital punishment. I wrote about it in the Denver Post, favoring the capital punishment beside but I imagine there were a variety of feelings on the part of the victims. Do you recall where you were at on that subject? Oh, absolutely. Um, early on, uh, one of his assistant DAs uh, was a, is a wonderful lady, and she was kind of the survivor outreach person uh, for the office. And so she knew all the survivors, and she would keep us updated and all of that. Great to work with. Um, she scheduled um, many meetings with separately, you know, individual. And she asked us what we thought. And we said, well, look, we're not going to get the death penalty. You know, it, it just doesn't happen anymore. Getting 12 people to decide where to have lunch is impossible, much less are you going to take somebody's life. So, you know, we're in favor of leaving it out. Just, you know, make sure he never sees the light of day. Da 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 da. Well, other families felt differently, and of course, uh, we realized once we started investigating who George Brockler was. Okay, this guy has ambition. Um, he's going to take this to trial. He's not going to plead it out. He's going to take it to trial because he needs to make a name for himself so he can run for higher office. So we were very pragmatic in that. In fact. Um, I had a, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. and uh, met with uh, Senator Bennett, and this was before the trial. And he goes, why are you guys having a trial? And he said, well, because jo George Brockler wants your job someday. And we kind of laughed about it. And he said, you think that's really it? And I said, yes. And he goes, how long have you been doing this? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, that's really politically astute that you put that together that quickly. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, he's a nice looking man. Uh, he's certainly very Aryan looking, um, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, he's got the background with the military. Uh, this guy has the ambition that, that, you know, he wants to go somewhere bigger than where he is currently. And he's going to use this as name recognition and a stepping stone to do so. Um, and it costs the taxpayers over $2 million to do it and get the same result that if he had played, pled it out. Now, the good thing is, out of all of that, and something I am thankful for, is that we found out a lot of things that we would never have found out had it been pled out. So um, that part I am grateful for. But, um, you know, could we have, we waited three years to go to trial. Um, we heard and saw things that nobody should hear or see. Uh, we could certainly point fingers in a lot of directions on who is to blame and why this happened and how it could have happened. Um, 
but the end result was the same as if he let it out and uh, we could have all moved on with our lives a lot earlier. Um, so, you know, he got what he wanted. It didn't work so well. He still didn't win. Bill uh, ended up beating him when he ran. So um, I've had talks with with George. We've had lunch together. I used to teasing that instead of running on a Republican ticket, if he were to run for as a moderate Democrat, he could win. Um, but he's allowed himself to become radicalized. And um, I hate to use the term bought and paid for, but he certainly has uh, aligned himself with people that I would not uh, sit down and have dinner with. How do you follow all that? I know you don't live in Colorado. Um, you know, George, um, for a while, we stayed in touch. Uh, and I had to call him one time when he was uh, running for office. And he had uh, received a um, an endorsement from, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, the, the Texas guy that's a singer that's so radical, um, Ted uh, Nugent. Ted, Ted Nugent, although he's the, Mich- he's the Michigan madman, right. Yes, yes. And um, somebody had sent me the article and said, look at this. And I was like, oh, come on, George. So I called him up and I said, George, what the hell? What are you doing? And he said, well, I can't I can't control who endorses me. And I said, yes, you can. And even if you can't feel like you can't you know, say something, you can at least if you can't handle saying no to somebody, you can at least say, I am not comfortable with this endorsement. But to take somebody like, first of all, to go to that meeting that you went to, which you know is far right radical, and then to be endorsed by by Ted Nugent and, and not say, no, this isn't okay with me, shame on you. Right. Episode 63, I had George Brockler on. And he was asked about Joe Altman, who was part Mm -hmm. of the Willard Hotel and who owns a firearms store in Douglas County. And George Brockler, I had to listen to him for two years on the radio, be a MAGA man. Now, he won't say he's a MAGA man, but he doesn't confront it. He goes along with it, right? In private, he has told me exactly what he thinks about it. But now he's running for Douglas County uh, DA. And uh, wow, have you seen what's George's, been... Go ahead. George is like Boy George, the singer. Come a, come a, come a, come a, come a chameleon. He's a chameleon. He's a boy George all the way. My little boy George. And, you know, he's a likable guy, but he's a chameleon. He'll be whatever he needs to be to advance George. Very smart clip. And uh, he knows the issues. He's also good with PowerPoint. And I do disagree with you a little. I do think that the uh, killer of your daughter deserved capital punishment. And I think I might have obtained it. And uh, Deserved is different than being able to get. Well, that's what they said when we tried to get a death verdict in Denver. But 12 Denverites said death to you, Frank Rodriguez. And it was upheld on appeal. And he died on death row of hepatitis C with his last appeal pending in the 10th Circuit. That was an 18-year ordeal for 
Antoinette Massimino, the sister of the late Lorraine Martelli. Yeah. And so I, I understand that. But I will defend George that he did a good job at the trial until the end a little. Then he had that Twitter incident. And for whatever reason, he couldn't convince everybody. And then he's been running for office since. But I could understand. He did an excellent. I will not take that right. away from him. He did an excellent yes. job in trial. He really did. And, um, and and his partners, his chief deputy is rich, and I forget the lady. She was terrific. But I listened yes. to it a lot. Yeah, and I, I followed it. And I yeah. was, I was, we, I was. They I was, did a they did a good job, and I'll tell you the the best thing that that office did for us. Um, they made sure we had plenty of advocates, victim advocates. Mm -hmm. Um, they made sure that there were tissues about every second person. So if we got emotional, we had access to tissues. Um, they had service dogs for us so we could take a break and we had a separate room that, um, we didn't have to be out with the, the media or anybody else. We could go into this room. And, um, when the, 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 uh, testimonies were really, uh, graphic. hard yeah. graphic, they had two, uh, therapists there for us. Um, they were, as far as that goes, fantastic really fantastic and i use that example a lot with other survivors around the country that are getting ready to go to trial and i tell them you know make sure your da does this does this that you have right. this that you have you know because it it made a huge difference in um our ability to be there on a daily basis yeah george proctor has skills and that's what i think both of us are saying what an advocate he could be in the gun control fight and that's okay maybe he has a different view on those things and i can have policy i can have policy disagreements with friends etc but i really can't when it comes to donald trump and that's what bothers me you sang the song chameleon which is good but i think of the c word capitulator I don't like the people who capitulate to MAGA for their own personal ambition. Yeah. I admire the Liz Cheney, the Adam Kinzingers. And so I want to end by, and we can spend all the time you want, but to me, Donald Trump is not only terrible on this mass murder firearms issue, but on a whole host of issues concerning democracy. Are you worried? Um. I am concerned uh, that Americans have become so lazy that they're not doing their due diligence, that they're not digging deep enough into the policies, um, the subject matters, um, I mean, even this NATO thing that's come up, you know, that they, they applaud and say, yay, oh my what God. he's talking, it's just, it's just lie. And from the very beginning, no, 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 let's, just, to, uh, let's just, so everybody who's listening, maybe hasn't heard the news this week, which is that Donald Trump stood up and said at a South Carolina rally that if a NATO company, uh, NATO country was not current on its dues, he would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want. No president's ever talked like that. And I hope never will again. 
And to me, a thought leader like a George Brockler can say, this is out of bounds. This is, you know, a host, everybody has an X account like you and I do. Dan Kaplis could tweet it out, but he doesn't. Instead, he boosts Mega, and so did Brockler when he had his radio show. And to me, you can't, it's gone too far. It's past the point of just mere political disagreements. The whole enchilada is at stake. We can't have a Donald Trump in office again, can we? Well, the shelf life is is over, and it's beginning to stink real bad. Um, and some of us are smelling it already, and others aren't. And uh, I, I just, I believe that America will show up. Um, I believe the issues of today that are so important at the domestic level will carry us to another term of Biden. Um, But the other side is very sneaky about their messaging. And they've been very good at knowing that most Americans aren't paying attention. And so they give them sound bites, which is what they want to live on uh, and go, yay at these rallies when they hear complete lies years ago and this gets back to my disney training um one of my my bosses asked me to go and find something out and da, 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 and i came back and i said well they said and he said who is they and i said so and so and so and so and they okay who is they and every time i'd use the word they he would challenge me to make sure that I knew what I was talking about, who I was talking about, and what was actually said. When Trump first ran and was doing, they tell me, and they say, and and I was like, who is they? And Americans aren't asking those questions. They're not, they're not digging deep enough. They're just taking it at face value. And, oh, he talks the same way I talk. And he hates the same people that I hate. And that makes him good and cool. And he was on TV. No, he's not cool. He's dangerous. He's not bright. He's talking about they that don't exist. And he's talking that, like, he's, he's, a god instead of a mortal man that is really out to take this country into a hole that we will never dig out of. Right. He has but mon- that's just my he, opinion. He has monsters in his head, and I agree with he you. He does. But one of those monsters, I think, is Vladimir Putin. Don't you? Oh, gosh, yes. But I've been worried about that even before he was elected yes. and um, uh, Flynn was over in Russia speaking and getting paid big money to yes. speak at these Putin dinners and, and Jill Stein was there. And, and at the time I was thinking, how can a general be speaking and getting paid big money at an event supporting Putin? What is going on here? This just doesn't make sense. And then, you know, I just I just think that there is uh, a lot of stuff going on that is very dangerous to our country and our, our security. I like your bounce back optimism. And let's end it on a beautiful Denver Post piece that we all read around here. 
talking about your beautiful Jesse, but about you, and I think you're quoted that you will find happiness again. I mean, you talked about crying every day, and I get that, but look at the difference you've made for so many people. Your words are powerful. You've led uh, an incredible life these last several decades, and I admire you so much, but, but talk about that if you would. Well, a few years ago, um, you know, well, right away, actually, there there were a couple of things that happened right after Jesse was dead that we found ourselves laughing. Um, like we got a phone call from Peyton Manning and um, I took the call and I hung up and I turned to the people that were in our home and I said, you're not, you're not going to believe who that was. And they all said, who, who, who? And I said, it was Peyton Manning. And my husband, who is not a sports guy, as I told you, said, who's Peyton Manning? And of course, we all laughed and uh, was so typical of Lonnie and would have, Jesse would have had a field day with it. Um, and it we felt guilty after we laughed. Because it was like, how can we be laughing? Our daughter was just taken. You know, how could we find anything funny? And over time, and a lot of work, uh, a lot of therapy, and a lot of mindfulness training, and uh, we have found joy again. And now when we laugh or see something absolutely stunningly beautiful, um, we... We enjoy that moment that we live in the present and we enjoy that moment because we know that if Jessie was with us and she is in many ways, but if she was still here physically um, and present with us, she would be enjoying that and laughing at that or uh, experiencing that in, in the same way that we are. And that brings us a sense of peace and joy. It will never be okay that Jesse's not here and not with us and didn't get to live up to her potential and live um, her life. But with that being said, we do feel her around her, around us all the time. Um, and we're reminder, reminded of uh, the joy that she brought us when she was here. And now it's our job to show other people that they can find that same joy in their lives. What a beautiful story about Peyton Manning. I always liked him, but I like him even better. Was that based on a Colorado connection? Yes. One of the, the young men uh, that Jessie knew before she moved there and was kind of a mentor to her in her sports, um, sports world um, had met him, I don't know how that had happened, but knew him and asked him if he would call us. And he graciously did so. So it was it was a lovely moment. He told us we'd always be part of the Bronco family and all the nice things. And we ended up uh, getting invited to uh, a game and, and being down on the field for a while, which was nice. But, uh, um, you know, it, it all just seems so surreal because that was Jesse's world, and it should still be her world. That's nice. And uh, let's hope that as, and I like your optimism, and as the MAGA scales fall from people's eyes, we've got to be open to them. You're probably nicer. And 
I understand you have to make accommodations, say, to be elected in Douglas County, but afterwards you can be a leader and maybe you will call George Brockler and try to influence him on gun legislation or is it past that point with Uh, you? Oh, no, I never have a problem talking with George. And in fact, uh, the last time we talked, I said, you know, you can call me anytime, but you need to be running as a moderate Democrat. (laughs) 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 He needs to listen to me. (laughs) Yeah, but but a moderate Democrat's not going to win in Douglas County. Not in Douglas, no. no. I just hope a a radical um, MAGA doesn't have to be a radical MAGA to win in Douglas. I just wish some of these guys could stand up to Lauren Boebert. She really is irresponsible when it comes to firearms. That Christmas card, wasn't that repulsive? Yes, but I find her repulsive. I do, you know, too. I find, her, I find her lies. I find her um, her family values, uh, all of that. I just I find her repulsive. And we follow each other on X. You know, I refer to Denver Trump radio. But the fact that every one of those people back Lauren Boebert, that's sickening. And it's what these people hear on AM radio, and it translates into votes for Trump. And it's... it's well, yeah. And, and the, the thing is, they're not making the connection that uh, the reason they're backing her is because they can control her. Yeah, who knows? It's like you think you can control the base and then the base takes over. Your audience, Fox News, saw that their audience would disappear if they told the truth. It's complicated, but you aren't. You're a simple, beautiful woman from Southern California, and you've led a remarkable life with ups and downs. And thanks a lot for sharing your story with us, Sandy, and with the world. Yeah. It was uh, my honor to do so. Thank you, Craig. Take care and tell Lonnie that he should really get into sports in his 80s. (laughs) Jesse News, thanks. Right. All right. Bye bye, you guys. Bye bye. Thank you. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey. That's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, everybody. For all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years years and i know a lot of people and if i can't do right by you i can steer you in the right direction my number 303-734-7156 ask for craig craig silverman a voice for victims a voice for people with legal difficulties
Hey, these are difficult times, and I'm on Twitter, at Craig's Colorado. I don't know why I'm still on X. Well, I do know. I talked to Allison Gill, who said, let's not surrender the battleground. And I go to war there because I think we are in war. I call out the truth. I call out my old radio partner, Dan Kaplis. Now, he's a creative guy, a smart guy, but he has sold his soul to MAGA. He gets business that way. You know, MAGA people get in car wrecks just like anybody else. And most personal injury lawyers don't like Trump. So that's a market. But how much money do you need? I don't just say that to Dan Kaplan. I say it to all the rich people out there who really hang on to the Republicans and Trump in hopes that there won't be an estate tax, there won't be anything uh, to invade their ability to get Social Security just like everybody else. I don't know. But come on, now, after Trump said he's going to abandon NATO, encourage Putin to invade Ukraine, or not just Ukraine, he's already done that, but to invade a NATO country, an ally, because Trump says you got to pay your bills. Why doesn't he pay E. Jane Cummings $83 million? Now with Judge N. Goron's ruling, is he going to pay his bills? He doesn't have that reputation. He's gone bankrupt over and over, but he says, hey, you got to pay your bills. And I understand that mobster-type enforcement strategy, and maybe that's the defense that some would offer. Hey, I think Marco Rubio said something like that, that Europe knows that he'll come through. He did it before, this or that. So I wanted to hear what Dan Kaplis would say in defense of that indefensible statement. Let me play it for you first, because it happened on Saturday night in South Carolina. Bad shit happens there. They start cheering as Trump turns traitor, as Trump invites Russia to do whatever the hell it wants to a NATO ally. Listen to this. We were already into Ukraine for over $200 billion. And they could make a deal with Russia in the next three weeks, and all of a sudden they don't want to deal with us anymore. We've given hundreds of billions of dollars. And why are we at over $200 billion? And the European nations are, if you add them up, it's a very similar-sized economy. They're $25 billion. So we're at 200 plus, and it affects them much more. We have a thing called an ocean between us, right? It affects them much more. But we're at 200, they're at 250. I did the same thing with NATO. I got them to pay up. NATO was busted until I came along. I said, everybody's going to pay. They said, well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. And everybody, you never saw more money pour in to Secretary General Stoltenberg. Well, I don't know if he is anymore, but he was my biggest fan. He said, all these presidents came in, they'd make a speech, they'd leave, and that was a bit. And they all owed money, and they wouldn't pay it. I came in, I made a speech, and I said, you got to pay up. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. And the money came flowing in. So how can you defend something like that? Really, how can you 
make excuses other than to say, as Marco Rubio did, well, he doesn't mean it. He's just trying to get people to pay their fair share. Marco, little Marco, can't stand him. But holy cow, Dan Kaplan's came up with the beauty. Because on the very day that Joe Biden gave one of the greatest speeches ever, imploring America to back this Senate bipartisan bill to fund Ukraine, I tweeted and 283,000 people responded to me saying Joe Biden was at his finest. Seemed like a 45-year-old. So Kaplis saw fit that day to claim that the ABC News at the top of the hour was not accurately portraying Biden's remarks. That ABC News is somehow some form of propaganda and that Trump really had not said anything inviting Russia to really invade an ally. So what Dan Kaplan said is the following. I wish Trump had not made that attempt at humor. Unless you think that I'm taking Dan Kaplan out of context, here is about two and a half minutes of his show. I believe it was on Tuesday. Yes, that's the day Biden gave his great speech. That's the day the Senate did its job. That was right before the next day when Mike Johnson said, hey, we're taking two weeks off to please Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Vladimir Putin then had time to kill Navalny. What's Congress going to do? They're on vacation. They're in the bag. Trump, too. And then Trump and his MAGA supporters who engage in the QAnon-like, ritualistic bashing of Joe Biden. I'm so furious at Dan Kaplis for championing the theory that Joe Biden's the head of the Biden crime family, yet it's come out that Alexander Smirnoff really set him up with perjured testimony to the FBI and all those Republicans and all those people who said it's Biden crime family, but it never stops the ritualistic bashing like QAnon of our President Joe Biden, who was doing a great job for an 81-year-old despite the backbiting of fellow Americans. Listen to this crap that goes out on the air, and it gets me furious on this day that Navalny died. There are consequences. Turn around and tone. Come on, you can't back MAGA. What's wrong with Nikki Haley? But no, it's all hail MAGA, all bad Biden. It's a cult. Listen to Dan Kaplis, my former radio partner, and see if it pisses you off too. We have two newscasts at the top of our hour, as you probably know. One is great and one is the opposite. The great ones are local newscasts. Those folks are right outside our door. The national newscast, ABC, is almost all the time just an extension of the Biden White House, as, as evidenced by what they're hammering on today, which is, you know, the, this speech somebody wrote for Biden, where he's out there talking about, you know, um, talking about how Trump was dumb and dangerous to to tell Putin that that that, that he would let Putin feast on a NATO country if they didn't pay, et cetera, and then Biden talks about how he'll never, he'll never, what do you say, bend the knee to the Russian dictator or something. Biden bent over for Putin. My goodness, Putin, hey, Putin did not go into Ukraine under Trump. Putin went into Ukraine under Obama, and Putin 
raped and pillaged Ukraine under Biden. Biden bent over for Putin. Biden made it clear he wouldn't do anything that made Putin mad. You know, Biden would do enough to try to cover himself politically here and elsewhere. But he made it clear. He said it. He said it publicly. He wasn't going to do anything that would make Putin too angry. Right. And so Biden literally, well, not literally, Biden bent over metaphorically for Putin. Now, here's why this line of attack is not going to work on Trump. And I wish Trump had not made that attempt at humor. You know, but but here's why it's not going to work. And none of that's going to work. People remember this isn't theory. Trump isn't some candidate for president where people have to guess what he's going to do in office. They know what he's going to do in office. They saw it. They had four years of it, and it looked really good. You know, under Trump, people know what happened. Putin didn't go into Ukraine. Under Trump, the enemies were so afraid of Trump that they didn't do things like this, this horrific atrocities in, in Israel. They didn't do things like raping and pillaging Ukraine. So look, this has gone way too far. It is brother against brother. Because if you back MAGA, you are backing planned retribution against guys like me. That puts me at peril. Kaplitz isn't at peril through Joe Biden. He'll still get his right-wing clientele. But come on, how many people are going to make money off of this MAGA movement? How many people are going to capitulate to gain a higher office or any office, any port in a storm, instead of trying to reconstruct some decent opposition party to Democrats instead of of this MAGA GOPQ or GOQP? I don't care what you call it. It's aggravating in this time of maximum turmoil. Donald Trump on the precipice of being the Republican nominee and he'll be entitled to intelligence briefings. Remember when in Helsinki would not allow notes to be taken and the way he came out of that room like a whipped puppy? Putin may as well have been carrying a leash, and then Trump said, I trust Putin over Americans, and he still is retweeting that. And by the way, as for that Dan Kaplis defense that it was an attempted humor, which is, just disinformation. It's for people who never listened to the speech. Well, Dan Kaplan said all he was doing was kidding around, and that's just not true. Let's hear that defense again. I wish Trump had not made that attempt at humor. Nothing is funny about this situation. It's time for people to speak up and name and shame people who are going to back MAGA and Putin, who are going to champion that cause. Talk about your really bad days. Donald Trump is having one, and it should go that way for the rest of 2024, if there is any justice. Judge Arthur Angoran ordered the former president and the Trump organization to pay over $354 million in damages and bars Trump from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation or other legal entity in New York for a period of three years. The man is a fraud. If you champion a fraud, does that make you a fraud? At what point will the GOP break away from Donald J. Trump? Will this be another brick? Will this be the straw that breaks the camel's back? 
doubtful. But at some point, there has to be a turning point, or America has huge problems. Why would anybody back a man like this? Let's hope they don't. Thanks for listening. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and, you know, meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book and appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, I promised a great show, and there it was. Thank you, Dave Gunders, our troubadour. But most of all, thank you to Sandy Phillips. I really feel like I got to know her. I hope you did, too. And to know her is to love her. What a great lady. Lonnie. I don't know you as well, but I read that book. Fantastic. Go to my show notes for how you can buy the book, how you can support uh, survivors, survivors empowered. There's a link there as well. You can support the show by giving us five stars on Apple, on Spotify, tell a friend, word of mouth, the most important. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. 
Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. <laughs>